people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. It ain't anybody perfect on this green earth. Not preachers. Look here, I know preacher. And you can tell folks better how terrible sin is if you know from your own experience. <laughs> In a world of sin and seduction, there's a lot of ways of getting saved. My name is Only J. Holy. Some do it with style. And I am a preacher. I don't, I don't mind you doing that. I'm going to the city. Some have other plans. I'm going to do some things I ain't never done before. I started my own church. Church of truth without Christ. Protestant? There's, there's something following. Oh, no, ma'am, it's Protestant. What Hazel Motes wants is a good car and a fast woman. Do you think I should neck or not? I shall not enter the kingdom of heaven anyway, so I don't see what difference it makes. What he gets is the last thing he wanted. He was once as tall as you and me. Some Arabs done it to him in six months. Where you come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to, weren't never there. And where you are, ain't no good unless you can get away from it. Hi, Ganga. I'm only 18 years old, but I already work at the city zoo. You idiot, get off. Wise Plus. The New York Times calls it an uproarious tale. One of John Huston's most original, most stunning movies. I can save you. I've got a church in my heart where Jesus is king. Nobody with a good car needs to be justified. Wise Blood. Some got it. Some preachers left his mark on you. It's not too much to know the truth, just one dollar. Some sell it. Where are you going? There must be at least ten dollars out there. And some give it away. That's okay, son. Mom don't mind if you ain't no preacher, as long as you got four dollars. A new film by John Huston. Wise Blood, from the acclaimed novel by Flannery O'Connor. Starring Brad Dourif with Ned Beatty, Harry Dean Stanton, and Amy Wright. Wise Blood, directed by John Huston, from New Line Cinema. This car is just beginning its life. A lightning bolt couldn't stop it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It's always a pleasure to be here. Also joining us in the booth for the first time is Mr. Philip Marinello. Two things I just can't stand. A man that ain't true and one that mocks what is. On this episode, we are looking at the 1979 film from John Huston, or Jahan, as I could say. <laughs> Jahan. Jahan. It's like he's a Klingon or a Vulcan, I suppose. The Wise Blood. Based on the book by Flannery O'Connor, the film stars Brad Dorff as Hazel Motes, a veteran who goes to the big city and decides to become a street preacher, and he's not out to make a quick buck, though everyone else around him 
does. I should say that we are covering this one as a special request from Jordan Nash, who's getting this from their Patreon donation. Join our Patreon at Projectionist level, and you too can pick a movie for discussion. We will be spoiling Wise Blood as we go along, so if you haven't seen the film, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. So Maitland, when was the first time you saw this one, and what did you think? I don't remember exactly when I saw Wise Blood. I don't believe I saw it in a theater. But I can't absolutely swear to that. It was a long time ago. But of course, at this point, everything is a long time ago. So that doesn't really count for much. But I did not see it during its first theatrical run. I can absolutely attest to that. And Philip, how about yourself? So just looked it up on my letterbox there. I first watched it uh, at the beginning of last year. So 2020, I started up a remote film club with some of my friends around the country and we just pick random movies and wise blood was the pick uh in january of 21 and it was something <laughs> i don't think any of us were ready for what we were about to see we knew the broad overview we knew john houston we knew it was in the criterion collection but uh we were not prepared okay so how random were those random picks i mean what really was the criteria or criterion for your choices so we each all take turns kind of nominating different ones. And this was, I think this was my pick. It was just on my radar. I really liked the cover. Sometimes for my blind picks uh, from the Criterion collection, I just go buy covers that are interesting. And I have a little file of stuff that I haven't seen yet. And I was like, I like Flannery O'Connor. I read her in college. Uh, This is one that I haven't read probably in 15 years or so. And then we picked it and I was like, oh, this some, some of this is coming back to me, but some of it I did not remember. Suffice to say, I was really pleased uh, to revisit it. Uh, None of us really enjoyed it very much on the first watch, but this is very much like when when you come to it knowing what it was, I far more enjoyed it. I had never seen this one before. I meant to years ago, I was at NoirCon down in Philadelphia and Jean W. Cash was there and she wrote a biography of Flannery O'Connor and was talking about wise blood. And I was just like, wow, this sounds really interesting. And then when I found it was a John Houston film, I was like, oh yeah. And then Brad Dorf, man, Brad Dorf in the late seventies, early eighties, before he kind of got relegated to more like bit parts when he was actually the star of the show. Yeah. Please sign me up. And I don't know why it took me so long to finally do this, but I'm, I'm really grateful to Jordan Nash for picking this one because I'm really glad that I got to see this now. And wow, what a cast. I couldn't believe when the names were coming up on screen. I was just like, you got to be kidding me. Harry Dean Stanton's in this. Just so many great faces. Um, Just I was was floored by how wonderful this movie was cast. And then I was really taken aback by just how the story plays out. I really didn't know which way this was going to go. One of the things that I love about this movie is that I think most of us and okay, Mike, you and I are probably about the same age. I think you're a bit younger, but being the age I was at the time I was seeing a lot of movies, Brad Dourif was always a weird, funny looking guy. And one of the things that's kind of astonishing about Wise Blood is to see that he was actually quite a handsome young man, handsome and dapper and very much somebody who could command the screen, not as, oh, that weird guy, but as a protagonist and rewatching Wise Blood really reminded me of what a transformation he underwent over the course of his career and how 
delightful it was to see him here as kind of a pretty cool, pretty attractive young guy. And I don't mean that in a shallow way. He was a protagonist. He was the hero of this movie. Yeah. At one point when uh, Amy Wright is saying, oh, he's so handsome. And I'm just like, yeah, I guess Brad Dourif doesn't look too bad in this movie. I think of him in his prime as the brother character in Ragtime. I think he's never been more handsome than he is in that. But I want to say that that was just two years after this. So it's right around that time. This is a few years after one flew over the cuckoo's nest. This is around the time of eyes of Laura Mars, where he starts to get that creep persona that he's going to really play into as he goes along. Obviously we are quite a few years before uh, Peter DeVries and Dune. And once he hits that, it's just like, I think I'm going to really fit into these weirdo characters very well. Well, it's interesting you bring up uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. I was looking that up in my research because I found out originally uh, Tommy Lee Jones was supposed to be playing the role of Hazel. And I was just looking, I was like, what did he even look at like that time? Because you're saying Brad Dorff in this role, he definitely looks the leading man, but his X factor of strangeness works so well for the setting and the story. And as things envelop, he looks like the sharp, clean cut guy coming back from war. But then when he like stands up on that car and starts preaching, you can kind of see the crazy in his eye light up. And I was just like, man, I, I, I know Tommy Lee Jones was huge back then, but I don't think I don't think they could have had a better Hazel at that time or really any other. And I think that one of the things that's great about what you just mentioned was that he has come back from the war and he really embodies a character who looks like he's fine. He presents himself as a very ordinary guy, yeah, sharp on the ball together. He dresses nicely. And yet, you know that part of what has made him who he is, is coming back from the war. And that absolutely inflects his character in this film throughout. There is a thing about him that's a little bit off. And although it's never really mentioned after that, nobody ever says, oh, well, you know, he was in the war. So he saw some rough things. That's very much a part of who he is. He's a guy who came through that and came back to a normal, ordinary way of living. But that doesn't go away. That's something that will always inflect you as a person and you as a participant in a peacetime society. He's coming back to a time very much of transition. Post-war is a transition but also the town that he's in is very much in transition when it gets picked up at the crossroads while he's hitchhiking and the man that picks him up has a very quick conversation with them because it's like, Hey, where, how far are you going to the end of this fence? But it's this whole thing of, Oh, once they built this interstate, people moved away from this town and this town is now a ghost town. So him going to this other town makes a lot of sense. Him going to the old farmhouse where he grew up, he writes that note about the Schifferobe and how if anybody takes it, he'll kill them. And we get the flashback right around that time to John Houston being this very fire and brimstone preacher between that influence of his grandfather. And then yes, the war and him just being completely rootless He's come back to a completely different place that he has no idea what to do. This whole thing of him going to the new town, seeing this guy with this fancy potato peeler, and just that confluence of all of these characters, like Dan Shore shows up, Harry Dean Stanton, Amy Wright, 
all of them converging on this one potato peeler guy who's showing his new invention. And I'm just like, is Dan Shore part of this? Is he like the guy in the crowd who's going to try to get the crowd going? Does he know Harry Dean Stanton's character already? Because Harry Dean Stanton's showing up with those dark glasses and that long, dark robe. He looks like death coming out over to, you know, take somebody away. I love the term shipper robe, which is completely Southern. Here up north, we call that a wardrobe. And the first time actually I ever heard the term ship a robe was in Silence of the Lambs, when it's a reference to Jodie Foster's character's background. Her grandma had a ship a robe. And I had to go look it up. You know, I went online. I did too, to be honest. I was like, what? Yeah, completely. It, it, it is not a Northern thing. Part of the thing that's great about that is that it is a very subtle way of just telling you this is a particular place. It's also a particular time, but the Shiva robe thing is not a particular time. You know, Silence of the Lambs is much later in terms of where it's set. It's very much about a culture and a place and a set of experiences and a set of references that people have that is alien to outsiders. It, and it, it's not in a really aggressive way. It's not a, a thing of, oh, well, you folks aren't from around here. It's just an insular way that everybody in this town, in this area, is connected by a shared cultural background, cultural, temporal, sociopolitical, that doesn't translate to any place else. And I think that's part of what makes this film so distinctive. Brad Dourif's Hazel Motes is so angry, and that anger comes from those things that we've talked about already. And his anger is just pointed straight at God. And he's so angry that people have been tricked by religion. And now he has this new religion, this, what is it? The church of Christ without Christ. And I love him going out and becoming this new preacher and that he's mistaken for a preacher beforehand once he gets that new suit and everything. And when people are just like, well, you look like a preacher. He's like, I ain't no preacher. And he's just so mad. And when he goes to visit the prostitute and comes in, he's just like, I'm not a preacher. And she's like, I don't care. As long as you got $4, that's fine. That was his intro for himself because the cab ride shook him up so much. He was trying to like, okay, I'm going to blend in. I'm going to get rid of my clothes. Like he was a wounded veteran. He had a purple heart and he didn't even wear that. Like he didn't want to be associated. I'm going to blend in. And he, he gets essentially a, a preacher's outfit. And then when the taxi takes him, he's like, he just, he gets so shaken up where he, he gives his thesis. There's nothing. I, I believe in nothing. And there's nothing. And that's, <laughs> he starts introducing himself. I'm not a preacher right before he starts actually preaching. But he's preaching for the church of Christ without Christ, which not be more perfect. Yeah, and he won't talk about where he got wounded either, which I'm just like, oh, well, maybe he just got shot in the ass. But then the more time goes on, I'm like, maybe he's got like a sex thing going on, but I'm not really sure. But he seems to have no problem when it comes to betting the prostitute, to betting Amy Wright's character. What's her name? Sabbath Lily. He seems to be doing okay in the lady department. I couldn't tell if that was anatomically or geographically. That was That was unclear for me where it's like, I don't want people to know where I was wounded. Like, I didn't know if he was embarrassed for his involvement in the war. Like, that was very unclear. I feel like that could kind of be read either way. And to me, it definitely felt like, oh, he was wounded somehow in his man parts. And 
And it's something that he really doesn't want anybody to know about. He wants to conceal it in every way he possibly can. And it's a, a, a source of deep shame for him. But that might just me, be me bringing that over from any number of other novels and films that we've experienced where that's the big problem for the protagonist. It has something to do with feeling emasculated or possibly even actually being emasculated during a wartime experience. And honestly, I have no answer ultimately for that. But that was the thing that I felt like that was the sand in my shoe with the character. He does definitely have some hangups with sex because there's the flashback right around here to the not naked woman in the box, but she's got, I want to say like pasties on and there's a shot of her crotch. And then next thing you see, he's still a little kid right after this experience and he's putting rocks in his shoes. And that'll come back later in the film that he's putting rocks in his shoes. He's also got barbed wire across his chest. He's very much into this whole idea of this self-flagellation in order to drive out bad thoughts and trying to make himself this pure person which is really in conflict with his, or maybe it's because of his hatred of God. And so, you know, he, he wants to be this pure person, but he doesn't want to get there through God, I suppose. Well, that's an interesting theme throughout the whole, the novel and the movies, the idea of cleanliness and Flannery O'Connor kind of coming at it from a Catholic viewpoint, dealing with somebody who grew up in the Protestant culture. And this movie was I was perplexed the first time I watched it, but preparing for this, I watched it a few times. I laughed a lot. Like it's dark, but it's hilarious. And one of the biggest laugh lines for me, both times I watched it this past week was when he first goes to the boarding house and the lady's like, what? Like the church of Christ without Christ. Is that something for? And he goes, oh, no, it's Protestant. <laughs> so the idea of penance as a Protestant, a kid who grew up in such a strict Idea where his his grandfather was a fire and brimstone preacher. He snuck in. He so he immediately is like, okay, like I have to do penance. I need to to make up for what I just did. He start and you can see kind of at the end of the film where that goes extremely. Just an interesting idea of Flannery O'Connor like pushing that to the extreme. Like what does a saint look like in the Protestant tradition? I thought was very interesting, and she really she really goes all the way with it. I want to talk real briefly about the Dan Shore character because he's the one that actually gives us the title of the film. His character's name is uh, Enoch Emery. He tells Hazel when he meets him that he knows things before they happen. It's a gift like to the prophets that he has wise blood. But I have to say Enoch is one of the strangest characters around. He wears a color combination that looks a lot like the Joker. He's got this purple shirt and green tie. He is obsessed with this little mummified body that's at a like a little museum kind of thing. He, he talks about how he works at the zoo. He's obsessed with the uh, chimpanzee. We get to see a uh, scene with them and this chimp, and he's kind of mocking this chimp. And then later on, there's this promotional thing. And I'm not really sure what it's promoting, but it's Gonga. It's a made up movie. It's like, come see Godzilla. And it's a guy in a Godzilla suit. It's kind of like that. It, again, so it kind of plays into this whole simian thing because now it's a guy in a uh, an ape suit and this truck going around town. Come see Gonga. Shake hands with Gonga. And then sure is just 
obsessed that he shows up so many times. Every time Ganga gets out of the truck, here's Dan Shore just like shaking his head. I'm a big admirer. And then he ends up stealing the suit and scares this woman half to death. Well, then he steals the, the little mummified thing and brings it back after he's humiliated in front of all these people. It's just like, here, here's this new saint. I found you a saint. And it's like, wow, what is going on with you? But I, he brings such kind of anarchy to the movie that I was really glad that he's there. Well, first, I love the Ganga thing just because, you know, I grew up in New York City, which means that I didn't have the whole drive-in experience. There was no local theater that kids went to for matinees or anything. It, it was just a very different kind of movie going. But I always remember the Big Ape movies. Big Ape movies were a really big thing for me. And I remember watching King Kong on TV with my mother, who I think actually cried when King Kong died. So the Big Apes were a thing for me. But that entire Ganga part was, on the one hand, bizarre, but felt to me like a part of the fabric of being young for several decades, frankly, I mean, starting in what, 30s, right up through the 70s, there was always a big sad monkey movie. No matter what, there was a great big ape who was misunderstood, who somehow went on a rampage that wasn't his fault, and was shot down from, thrown into, otherwise annihilated at the end of the movie. And that part of that movie really, uh, that part of this movie, uh, it really struck a chord for me as a child of a certain time. I mean, big sad monkey movies were a big, big thing and clearly reflected a way of deflecting thoughts about people who were maltreated, who never really had a chance, who were born into a world they never made and were crushed by it into a movie creature that everybody could deal with. Well, I know that King Kong can be read pretty easily as a whole story of the African-American experience or the African experience. And I'm wondering, because we don't really deal with, I think there's just a very few black characters in Wise Blood that for the one that really stands out for me is the kid that puts the water in the radiator, because we haven't talked about his car yet, but we'll definitely get there. We definitely get the N word being thrown out like crazy, which I I remember is only a year ago. I was like, whew, there's, (laughs) which I know is true to O'Connor's prose and everything. And I know that there was this whole thing like, is Flannery O'Connor a racist or is she just from the South? Maybe that's where the chimpanzee and and Gonga are coming from. I really thought that Shore was going to show up in the Gonga costume and help get people to show up to Hayes's, uh, his lectures, his, his, his uh, street preaching. I thought that for sure that they would use that as like a promotional gimmick because, you know, promoting a movie, promoting religion, it's basically the same thing. A lot of times. I don't know if Flannery O'Connor exactly intended it. Cause I know at, at least in part, the novel was reworked from several short stories because she's primarily a short story writer. She's wrote dozens and dozens of short stories. A lot of, I mean, most famous one being a good man is hard to find, but several of the major chapters in Wise Blood were short stories she already had written and kind of reworked it into a novel. So I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or if this was the scriptwriter and John Houston kind of deciding. The last time I watched it, I really kind of saw Hazel and Emery and Enoch rather kind of on very similar paths throughout the entire movie. You, you said, you mentioned. He was at the zoo, just like 
with a weird kind of disdain and aggression and antagonism towards the the monkey and at the end he kind of becomes one after an extreme act of act of violence and hazel Motes is like these preachers these holy men all this stuff is nonsense and then after an extreme act of violence he becomes one so i kind of saw their paths mirror in a lot of strange ways on my last viewing so i wasn't wasn't quite sure like two definitely lost lost young men and that's very much a thing of the time like guys who aren't anchored in anything in society trying to find a way knowing what they don't like from the previous generation and then trying to find a way forward um, in some pretty uh, extreme blundering ways one of the things that we're talking around here because we have to given the time it is is how blunt the talk about race is here in this movie there is no getting around it it really is about a time when white people felt really free to throw the n-word around that word at that time was not a good word but it was a word that people could use and now it's a word that is so toxic that you can't use it at all that is an issue that pretty much everybody watching this movie now has to deal with and for a lot of people i think it's a major turnoff they just look at it and say oh well, they said the N-word. I'm going to dismiss this movie in a major way because, well, we can't say that anymore. And yet, for a great piece of American history, that word was a word that was used in a lot of ways. It was used by white people. Often, it was Most often, it was used to be derogatory. It was also used by people of color. And more often than not, it was a, a community word. It was a word that you could use because everybody you knew was somebody that that word could describe. I'm really not sure how I feel about the way this movie deals with it, but I think it's something we we need to talk about. It's so casual the way that they throw it around. It's very much the disparaging term. Who made this car? Well, it was made. It wasn't made by Chinese or N words, and it's just like okay. Or later on when he's like. Jesus is a trick that was played on N words. And it's just like, okay, you know, like he, he's trying to say something or O'Connor's trying to say something through Hazel, but yeah, it's, it's definitely not being used in a inclusive, Hey, my Negroes, you know, it's not one of those kind of things. It is very, the, the lowest of the low are the ones that are the, that feed in on the Jesus talk. And he's just going to disparage anybody that, gets in on Jesus, they're as dumb as N-words. And yeah, that's a a very powerful thing to try to deal with, because honestly, in the South at that time, everybody was as buried in that religion as everybody else. White people were just as absorbed by it, just as blinded by it, just as suffocated by it, and just as forced into ignorance by it. So it's a very potent idea that, again, we're now hampered in discussion about because that language is now so toxic, particularly because look at all of us. We're all white people. Well, and I know that it was, it's was it been a, somewhat of a controversy over the years, even um, studying Flannery O'Connor's writing in English departments. I mean, some of her, the titles of her short stories have the N-word in them. It's uh, an interesting challenge for sure. And yeah, it's definitely used just very flippantly and commonly because the movie came out in the late seventies, but it depicts the South in the late forties, early fifties after the war. 
And I mean, yeah, that's just people talking back then, really. It is people talking. And again, that word is very much a word that a lot of people use in a lot of ways. And I think the toxicity of the way it's treated, it's culturally a bad thing because it completely takes it out of language. It's, for example, the word cunt referring to women. Okay. At one time, that was just the worst thing you could say about a woman. But at this point, a lot of women will say of other women, oh my God, you're such a dumb cunt. And we don't really mean that in the most derogatory way you could. It's just a way of saying, oh, that's a dumb bitch. But bitch doesn't. Doesn't have that power. Yeah. And yet when women are talking to other women, cunt doesn't have the poisonous power that it has when men say it about women. So a lot of that is context. I wasn't sure exactly what year this was supposed to be set in. I'm no car expert, so I can't say, oh, well, he was driving a 50 whatever vehicle. So I didn't go to the internet movie car database to look that one up, which is a thing. The book was published in 52. So it's very obvious to me that Hayes is coming back after World War II. In this version, it feels more like he's coming back after Vietnam because the South at this time was very much like this kind of time capsule. And I think that's one of the things that you know Northerners would say is, oh, they're stuck in time. They're stuck in you know the 1950s. And I think that's actually a good thing for this movie is because we don't know, because it feels like there are certain things that don't fit into a 1952 story, but that's okay because they are stuck in time. And it feels like some things are modern, some things aren't, but we're just kind of stuck in this timeless space. It's almost like um, Edward Scissorhands or something where it's just like, okay, this is middle America and it's always going to be 1950. Yeah, the movie definitely reads more as 60s, 70s rather than late 40s. There was nothing that really stuck out for me as far as like, oh, well, for sure, that's got to be this. You know, for sure, like, I don't know, the bus station, the cars, nothing was just screaming at me as far as, oh, yeah, here's a modern convenience. You know, they're like, they're using the potato peeler, you know, like that's the new modern invention. It's not like, you know, blue blockers or something like that. Blue blocker sunglasses. They're really different. My name is Geek. I put them on as a shocker. Man, I love these blue blockers. Everything is clear. They block out the sun. Oh, yeah. I got to get me some. But I also find it interesting that this was. It was Wise Blood originally was not a, let's say, a full novel, like beginning to end. It was all one thing that it was actually like reworked pieces of, I think the part on the train was Flannery O'Connor's master's thesis, if memory serves. And then things like the peeler part itself or uh, Enoch and the gorilla, like they were all other stories that then she kind of took back and reworked into a full story with wise blood. You get that a little bit, you get the feel that this wasn't a whole, but I think that they, they integrate it well enough that it really feels like we're just kind of taking little bits and just going through this slice of life of this city and really just concentrating on Hayes and all of these odd things that are happening to him, because there are certain things where I'm just like, 
well, did that scene really need to be here? But then afterwards I'll be like, no, yeah, all of these scenes needed to be here. This all adds up to a whole, even if there are little pieces where I'm just like, I don't really see how that's going to play into the larger picture. But then at the end, I'm like, oh yeah, this makes sense. The whole way that this was structured. Yeah. It's very tightly kind of scripted that, like I said, the first time I felt very sad. I was like, this is a big old mess, but looking at it with a critical eye, really I mean, Houston was a master at this point in the late 70s. He had he'd been around for decades and decades, churning out loads of masterpieces. And he, he was very economical. And I could definitely see that this time through that it's rare that one scene directly plays into another. They do kind of play like vignettes, but thematically and structurally and, and the plot does move forward. Um, it's a very uh, efficient film. And yet at the same time, I think that that, big old mess idea does inflect the way this story is told. It's a story that's being told the way people in a, in a town tell each other stories and everybody's, everybody's in everybody's business. Everybody knows if not everything about everybody else, a lot of things about everybody else. And so everybody is swapping bits of stories that are going back and forth and are being traded between different people and all ultimately are woven into this master narrative and changed by the way that different people told them. And I, I think that's a real part of the way wise blood feels to me. So I did look up the car and it is a 1958 Ford Fairlane 500. I am at the IMCDB internet movie nice. car database. Learn something on this. Yeah. So I'm seeing things like a 78 Ford club wagon a 54 Ford Crestline Victoria feels like Ford was definitely involved in this because I think <laughs> every vehicle I see a GMC rally, a Mercedes Benz. Was it one of the cars that was in the junkyard, but otherwise it's almost all Fords. Oh, sorry. It was a Dodge D series that the, the Gonga uh, promotion was being carted around in, but definitely we are playing with, the years and 78 Ford LTD was the newest car. So uh, contemporary to the day. And the funny thing is I looked at that Ford and, and thought, is that Ford Fairlane? And then I couldn't fucking read it. <laughs> I couldn't tell. And it nagged at me. And ultimately I just gave it up, but yes, Ford Fairlane. <laughs> that fucking car, man. And just that everybody tells him what a piece of shit it is. And he's just like, no, no, this is a good car. <laughs> Fanatically devoted to that car. Fanatic, yes. Well, the car's literally, you forget which character he says it to. Well, he says maybe different things to different characters. At the end, when he tries to go get it uh, looked at by the mechanic, he's like, this car is every, like, this car will, like, take him places. Like, when he first bought it, he goes, I might sleep in here. Like he uses it to stand on to preach. Like that car is kind of like not even a microcosm. Like the car is like everything for him at the very end of the film. Let's jump ahead. But at the very end of the film, when the policeman pulls him over, and he's just like, I don't like your face. And it's just like so mean about it. And then he just pushes the car into a lake. And that's the inciting incident for him to like, not killing a man that happened previously it's having his car taken away from him. Well, and I think in the book, he 
he gets clubbed by that cop. It's not just this whole thing of like, oh, the cop pushes him into the uh, pushes his car into uh, the lake. I, I think that he uh, gets abused by that cop. I could be wrong about that. But I know that he and Enoch both essentially commit murders kind of simultaneously and then have their Enoch just kind of disappears, which might be a little bit of a reference to his namesake, I guess, biblically. And that's what turns Hazel into his uh, stoic, uh, ascetic, uh, self-punishment existence. I take it back. So what happens is there's two encounters with policemen. The one who pushes it into a lake, it's actually he pushes it off a cliff in the book. He says, well, if you don't have a license, there's no reason for you to have a car and pushes it off a cliff. And then it's one of the cops that finds him in the ditch. When they the find end. him. Yeah. Yeah. Beats him in the head with the club and kills him. And then they take his body back to Mrs. Flood, the landlady. And he, she basically is like holding on to him and, and thinks that he's still alive, even though it's a dead body. Yeah, Nursing him as if he's alive. Very morbid. Oh boy. Yeah. Now that the current ending isn't morbid. Oof looking into his empty eye sockets after he blinded himself, like convincing herself that he's still in there. Yeah. The book is very, very bleak. Yeah. And this whole thing too, where he basically sees where he's going to go when he meets Asa Hawks, the Harry Dean Stanton character, because Hawks is a street creature. He blinded himself with quicklime. He's got this daughter and the daughter ends up sleeping with Hazel. He's she's all about Hazel. And then he ends up going out and after he's murdered a man, we'll get to that. After he's murdered William Hickey, he loses his car, which like we've said is basically him. And then he blinds himself. He loses the girl and then he gets the landlady is how he ends up. I I don't recall exactly how it worked in the book, the, the confrontation, but in the movie, I believe the most animated and the most like furious, like, Hazel's angry throughout the whole movie, but the most fury that he expresses is after he finds out Harry Dean Stanton's character, he knows he's a false prophet, but that he didn't even really blind himself. Just his indignance. Like he was looking at my, like he saw me. He's like, and his daughter's like, well, yeah, like I thought no one thinks he's like really blind. Like everybody likes the idea of a blind preacher. So he's like playing this role and he's just incensed. And then when you see him by the quick line, you're like, no, this guy's going to go all the way with it. One of the things I really liked in this movie was the emphasis on selling religious tracts. And part of that is because I've always been fascinated by them. I have a massive collection of chick tracts. And one of the things that I, that I ran across as, as I was talking about them on Facebook years ago when I started collecting was that Daniel Close is a huge fan of them. He and I corresponded actually for probably the better part of two years about tracts we had and tracts we didn't have and things we really wished we could find, but they were apparently not being published anymore. But that entire school of tracts is fascinating to me. I was raised Catholic. We don't have tracts. That's just not a Catholic thing. You got the Bible, you got you have priests, you don't have little tracts illustrating Bible stories, right? You have a priest for that. You have nuns for that. It's just not a thing. And so the idea of trying to spread the gospel in tracts was crazy to me. The idea that you needed little cartoons to 
tell you what was in the Bible. And again, I, I didn't grow up in a mega Bible reading family. I really didn't. My family was Catholic. My grandmother was devout. And my father was the product of that devotion. My mother was Protestant, actually. So we, she was really not into that kind of thing. But the fervor of Southern religion is something that's just wild to me because there is something so sexual about it and that there's no getting around it, right? It's all about ecstasy and abandon. And that's something that underlies all of this movie without ever being brought right up to the surface. Like going back to the moment where he was spying at the, the carnival or whatever, like that was formative to him. Cause a lot of that religion is based on condemnation externally. And then not really a whole lot of like internal, like, here, I mean, in, in no one religion has a uh, a market on scandal, but I mean, you, you hear scandal after scandal after scandal of people who are so strict and who preach like this is the only way to be truly pure, and then all these things come out, and it's it's uh it's something. He gets so offended when Ned Beatty shows up and starts asking people for money. So offended, and Ned Beatty's just like, "Wow, this is a great money making opportunity, you know." And I, I, I help people out like this all the time, you know. It feels like he's just like, "Oh, well, I know exactly what to do." Okay, yeah, and we'll do this, and you have to give us a dollar. Okay, everybody, you know, cough and cough up a buck here. Perfect and, casting. With oh God, he's so good. And then when Hayes rejects him, what's he do? Well, Ned goes out and he gets William Hickey. The one and only William Hickey, bless your heart, William Hickey. I loved you so much and everything that you did. And it was great because Houston recognized how great he is. And his role in Pritzy's honor is probably one of the best things that Hickey ever did. You are a true Pritzy. Hey, you like to have a cookie? Probably the best thing about that movie. I'm not a big Pritzy's honor guy, but my gosh, when he wearing the same outfit, Gets up on the car, starts doing his thing. Ned Beatty's there, like collecting all the money, gives him four whole dollars. And you're just like, wow, well, that's Hazel's on to- his car. They're on their car, not even like far down the street. They're like 30, 40 feet away. <laughs> and he's literally like, come over here. And it's like an exact replica. Like he just gets like, <laughs> you stole my crowd. But he's also not about building. He's such an amalgam of contradictions. It's, it's funny and it's heartbreaking at a certain point. You, you almost got to empathize and feel sorry for this guy who was so messed up by his grandfather. I'm sure messed up by the war to where he's just flailing, <laughs> but he knows that like this guy, these guys are charlatans like, and I'm being genuine. And that's the, the line I said at the beginning, like what he hates the most is purposeful falsehood. And that's what he sees in Ned Beatty's character. And, Man, Ed Beatty was something with his guitar that was inspired casting. And when Hayes just straight up murders William Hickey, you know, I couldn't believe it. When I saw it the first time, I was just like, you have to be kidding me. When, you know, he has William Hickey, he, he bumps into Hickey's car, pushes his car off a cliff before his own car gets pushed off a cliff, pushes Hickey's car off a cliff. All right, take off that outfit. And I was just like, he's going to make this guy strip down to nothing. And then he starts following him while Hickey's running down the road, taking off his clothes. And when Brad Dourif hits him, 
I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And then he runs over him and then he gets out kind of hot trash in his ear as he's dying. Yeah. Just slamming him some more. Just like, you should not have done that. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God. I don't know how much of his decline at the end. Hayes's cl- decline is because he murdered somebody or if it's actually, you know, that his car has been stolen and that people are, all phonies you know he's kind of like this holden caulfield type character where he realizes that the world's full of phonies i find all of that a fascinating way to enter this movie because yeah first of all foremost it is all about falsehood it's about identities about lies about not quite lies the things you say that aren't totally the truth but you could maybe pass them off if you were in a group of like-minded people I want to say that's a very Southern thing, but actually that's a very people thing. It's a very human thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I grew up in New York. There were all kinds of things that got talked around in every aspect of my life, in my family life, in my school life, in my church life, because again, I was raised Catholic. I went to church until I think my junior year in high school was the year that I just said, not doing it anymore. I am not going to 9 a.m. mass. Sorry. All of that is is very much part of my upbringing. And, and I think Northeastern religion is probably not as intense as Southern religion, unless you're Italian, where it's definitely very intense. Or Irish, possibly, except that, of course, my family's Irish. So... And it wasn't quite so intense, but maybe that was because my mother was English and that was the balancing factor there that just take the real crazy out of the Irish religious thing. It's really interesting to look at some of the output that Houston was doing in the seventies and even the late sixties. I mean, he was so eclectic when it came to choosing the projects that he did. And sometimes it feels like he was doing that one for you, one for me type of thing. Fat City in 1972, I think would be a great double feature with Wise Blood because it is so much about losers and people that think that they're one thing, but they're actually something else. And just this whole idea of self-delusion and really you're hanging on by a thread. And I would even say that, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but the man who would be king kind of fits into that as well because of this whole thing of oh, they think you're a god, so act like a god and get treated like a god. And then when they find out that you're actually not a god there, Peachy, you're done for. And I feel like those films all kind of play with this. And then even thinking about like his 67 film, Reflections in a Golden Eye, I mean, talk about kidding yourself. That movie, wow. Just this whole idea of, oh, I hate gay people, but I'm actually gay. I mean, again, it feels just this whole like, I'm in crisis. All of these, this masculinity and crisis that we're doing throughout so much of his Whoa, stuff. Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando. That's not one I'm familiar with at all. I'm, oh, it's that, amazing. The watch list. It, it is breathtaking. There are versions. The version I saw was shot with a real golden tint to so much of the film. It's amazing. He definitely had a very interesting career, but I would say if you like Fat City, definitely check this one out because it feels very much like Fat City's happening on the West Coast and this is happening, what is it, Georgia, where this is supposed to be set, but basically the Southern U.S. Yeah, somewhere in the South, for sure. 
I noticed it the first time I saw it, and it's not even exactly a specific note. I was going to go back and try to scrub through on iTunes, Paul Schrader's commentary track on First Reformed, just the extreme use of barbed wire in that film in this one is something that I, I don't watch loads of stuff on purpose about with like with strong religious themes because usually it's not always done very thoughtfully. And this one I thought was actually very interesting. Kind of the whole um, project came together with all the people who were behind all their different roles. But I thought uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Ethan Hawke's character from first reformed and Hazel kind of as parallel characters who, who feel so strongly, like they know so much of what they're against and all the problems in the world. And they have this God haunted soul where it's not clear to them. Like if they are believers positively, like they know the things that they don't believe in, they know kind of their longings and their proclivities, but through various things, they both end up doing some very strong actions and make some very extreme choices. But uh, I thought that was interesting. Just seeing a man wrapped in barbed wire is not a, not something you see all the time. And even like it was very lo-fi. It wasn't done over the top. Like I I thought that was just very effective imagery of again, Flannery O'Connor being a Catholic, trying to show an extreme kind of comical version of like what, what a Protestant saint would be. And maybe somebody, especially a Southern Protestant who the, the foibles and the shortcomings and the hypocrisies and, and the wickedness of, of some of those religions, like how somebody like that could, seek to be redeemed or purified actually. And I just thought that was very interesting. That's also a totally Protestant thing because the good thing about Catholicism is all you have to do is, is freaking confess and your sins are washed away. That's the good thing about Catholicism. Which bizarrely are the tenets of Protestantism. But because like you even said, like they get so many things so twisted internally i feel like a lot of people who do end up living lifestyles like that they're not taught from pulpits or from texts hey this is what you do the the confession and the grace it's not a religion of grace southern protestantism it is a religion of judgment if the strongest characteristic of god is judgment wrath and fury and that's the god you're trying to appease you're going to bring on like judgment wrath and fury on yourself and others and Hazel did that to the nth degree. This whole thing of him punishing some himself with that uh, barbed wire. It so reminded me of the, what is it? Like a ceviche or um, oh, yeah. yeah. Like a hair cloth is or a hair shirt is one or the one that goes around your thigh, the spiked metal. I remember. Absolutely. And the flail you flog yourself with. I mean, yeah, again, very Catholic for sure, but absolutely adaptable to any religious, any Christian religious sect where you feel that you need to pay for what you've done and you need to do it yourself. You need to punish yourself for the things you have said or thought or done. Catholics have it easy, really, truly. All you have to do is go and confess. When I was in grammar school, I confessed every effing week to, you know, I was mean to my sister because when you're seven, what do you have to confess? Right. I was mean to my sister. I I ignored my mother when she told me to do something. Your sins are pretty minor at that age. But once you understand that rhythm of confessing, if you want to go on to do really bad things in your life, Catholicism gives you a terrific out. 
can do horrible things and then just step into the confessional, speak through that screen, you know, say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I have and list the things you've done and you got a guarantee that you're going to. Here's your absolution right here for you. Exactly. You get told to, you know, say the rosary 500 times or something, depending on the gravity of your sins. But the absolution is there. It's a great deal. Part of me feels like, why, why did I not just you know, stay a Catholic? Because really, I wouldn't have to feel bad about anything. All I'd have to go do is go to confession and absolution would be mine. But I thought that was the thing that Catholics felt guilty all the time. Yeah, but you get given all the time. So it's always on your mind. He, he starts out saying, I'm going to preach the church of Christ without Christ. Like without Christ is a big part of his message. And then about halfway through, like midway through the second act, he's talking about, we need a new Jesus. And that's kind of what sends Enoch off to go get his wild little, um, uh, little shrunken person from the museum. But I thought that idea in and of itself was fascinating and very telling of the South, but also of just humanity. Like there's so many people you run into. And I mean, the loudest people are probably the people on the extremes, but the people who who want to tell you, I, I don't believe in God or I hate God or all these things. And they're still defining themselves in relation to God. And Hazel's like, well, I want to preach the church without Christ. But man, we need a new Jesus. We need a focal point. He doesn't say we need a new object of worship. We need a new leader. We need a new sovereign. He says, we need a new Jesus. And like, just that sentiment is so interesting. Like the people who are raised in these things and just us, like we, there, there is something inside us that is, is seeking for something and it'll be filled with either people fallen prey to uh, religious scam artists or on the other side, just kind of living your own life. However it is like, we're all, we're all living for something. I just thought that was very uh, insightful as Flannery O'Connor often is in her own very dark, humorous way. And that they choose that little mummified, what I can only assume is a little mummified black person from the museum. And then when Sabbath Lily gets her hands on it and she dresses up like Mary, holds it at her breast and it's just like, oh, here it is, the son of the Lord. And it's like, wow, okay. And the way he destroys that thing too, just tears the head right off of it. Darn. He throws it against the wall and it just falls apart because it's a it's a mummified shrunken corpse. And that's that's still pretty distressing stuff. Like it hasn't been an alive human probably for, I don't know, a century or so, but it's it's still very disturbing. Oh, if not more. I mean, it looks like a first of all, it, it does look like a child and it looks like a child's body that was placed in a cave ages ago. Yeah, that, that was very distressing when he threw it against the wall and it just came apart. And then she's like like nursing the head inside the bed later on. And it's some grim imagery. Well, that's pretty fabulous. <laughs> that, that is one of the most amazing images, I think, in this movie because it just sums up so many things. Part of her thing is like, yeah, we're frauds. But she's still drawn to it in a strange way. Like people are drawn to the transcendent and they'll find their fix one way or the other, I guess is one of the messages. Well, I think the big message is that is the appeal of religion, not every single religion, but the the overwhelming majority of them are driven 
by the message that there is more to life than you understand and there is more to you than you can imagine and your faith is what is going to allow you to access that more that's a powerful thing because let's face it most of life for most people most of the time ranges from it's okay to actually this is pretty crappy so that promise that there is something glorious something that will will reveal the transcendence within you that that's a powerful powerful thing to hold in front of people i'm glad that you brought up paul schrader because there are definitely elements of first reformed i see in here i was also getting a lot of and please don't laugh i was getting a lot of timothy Carey's world's greatest sinner in here as well because he very much preaches he becomes a street preacher trying to get people to listen to him and his whole thing is basically religion without god it's the common man party is what he is doing and he's just like oh what does people care about when there's death there's only life life eternal everybody here follow me and i'll show you around to the end of the world and he eventually has basically a fist fight with god at the very end when he's poking a needle into the uh the eucharist and the blood comes out and that's like what blows his mind that's the the amazing final climax of the movie which is done in a very shocking color scene in a black and white movie i really think that hayes and clarence hilliard would get along very well because they are both so conflicted and both just out there preaching their gospel in the way that they see fit. Absolutely. Schrader's such an interesting guy. Oh, God, yes. Well, Maitland knows him. Maitland, you've done a whole bunch of work with Paul Schrader. I have done a bunch of work with him, and he's my Facebook friend. So I see why that man gets <laughs> gets going on Facebook. He sure does. <laughs> he surely does. And honestly, you know, I see in Paul Schrader a lot of the men whom I grew up with, although all the men I grew up with were Catholics because that's how Catholic communities are. But it's it, it doesn't matter. It's it, it is the same intense religiousness that is driven by a sense of first that you are all tainted by the original sin. So it doesn't matter what you or your ancestors as far back as you can trace them did. The original sin is still staining your soul and you have to figure out some way to atone for it. And the varieties of atonement obviously are just mind boggling. And yet they're never good enough. And that is the thing that makes people crazy. It doesn't matter how much you do how much you atone, whether you're flagellating yourself or devoting every non-working hour to serving the poor in whatever way you can. It doesn't matter. You will never be good enough. That's just horrifying, frankly. And yet that is the way it works. And that's why people go to their deathbeds, begging for forgiveness, because no matter what they've done in their lives, they feel as though it has not eradicated that stain of original sin. I don't, I don't even know how to describe how horrifying that is because it means that the moment you come out of your mother's womb, a little damp baby with the umbilical cord still attached, you're still stained by that original sin. You haven't done a thing except be born. 
All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a few interviews. First up, you're going to hear from the author of Flannery O'Connor, A Life, Professor Gene W. Cash. After that, you'll hear from the writer-producer Michael Fitzgerald. you also hear from Enoch Emery himself, Mr. Dan Shore. And last but definitely not least, we'll hear from Sabbath Lily herself, Amy Wright. And we'll be back with all of that after these brief messages. Hello, this is Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And this is Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. Okay. We're screenwriters by day, podcasters by night. Yeah, okay, Batman. (laughs) And we're the hosts of The Best Bits, a show where each episode we pick our favorite film scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. Such as best fight scene, best sex scene, and best Tom Cruise running scene. Why should I know these things? Do you know them? And we have the world's first podcasting AI to keep us on the straight and narrow. Say hello, Bodbot. Hello. So, if you're looking for another film podcast to subscribe to, why not check us out? The Best Bits with Will Collins and Kevin Lehan. And Podbot. Yeah, it's good crack. <laughs> Irish crack. So if you want legal crack, subscribe to the Best Bits podcast. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from Gene W. Cash, the author of Flannery O'Connor, A Life. How did you get your start in academia? I always wanted to be a writer for many years, but I started out, as many women in my era did, as a secondary teacher. But I always knew that I wanted to go back to graduate school and do a doctorate. And that happened when I was about 40. After I was ABD, and you know what that means, I think, don't you? Everything but the dissertation. I got a job at James Madison University. That was 1980, and I taught there all those years, okay, until 2018. I've always been interested in Southern literature. I went to Ole Miss for my doctorate because I'm outright worship of William Faulkner. As a matter of fact, in two weeks, I'm getting ready to teach a Faulkner class for we have a lifelong learning institute at JMU. So I've done, I'm getting ready to do that. And how did you come to Flannery O'Connor? I got interested in O'Connor for the first time when I was in graduate school at Ole Miss. I had read Wise Blood before I went to school. But another thing that's interesting about people of my era When I was an undergraduate, we didn't study contemporary literature at all. I don't know if that seems believable to you or not, but we weren't offered class in even Hemingway or Faulkner or Fitzgerald. So that what I know about those writers, I've learned in the years since. But at any rate, I got interested in O'Connor, and in the beginning, I didn't really believe her. I thought she was a satirist. I thought she was just making fun of all those that I understand now are deeply religious characters. I remember in graduate school, I argued with with a teacher along those lines, but it was uh, O'Connor's letters, the habit of being, that really converted me to understand her work as I've come to understand it. My first project on O'Connor came as a result of my teaching. When I first started to teach at JMU, I taught only freshmen, and the second semester English class was an introduction to literature. 
and there were O'Connor stories in every anthology that, that they, I'm sure you went to college, so you know how these programs work. They choose different anthologies every other year or so. So at any rate, I started to teach O'Connor stories then. And then I started to look up what she had to say about the stories in Habit of Being. So my first project, I decided that I was doing a teacher's aid. What I did was went through all those letters. It was very naive, naive in those days, too. Went through all those letters and pulled out everything that she had to say about every one of her works and organized a manuscript, really, that, that features just that approach. I didn't even know about Sally Fitzgerald in those days, except that she was the editor of The Habit of Being. And uh, when I, I had the project ready to do something with, and I wrote to her, I had no idea of the kind of person she was. She was extremely territorial, and she, she just told me in no uncertain terms that I wouldn't be able to get that work published at all. So that's how I started. And then, because I got so interested by that point, I started to write articles on O'Connor, uh, biographical kinds of articles. And a friend of mine, colleague of mine at JME, said said to me one day, well, you're publishing these, these articles about her. Why don't you write a biography? That's what got me motivated to do an unauthorized biography of Flannery O'Connor. When I had the manuscript ready to go, I had used quotations from the letters in Habit of a Being. And of course, you you know, up to a certain point, it's perfectly all right if you do the proper attribution to use those letters. But I had found a lot of other letters, too. And when I submitted the manuscript, it had been accepted. I got a letter telling me that from, from her executors at the time that I couldn't use any letters that hadn't been previously published. The last thing I did to that manuscript was go back and paraphrase comments from those letters. But all that's changed. I mean, in the last 10 to 15 years, the Louis Florin Court, who still is, is O'Connor's kind of unofficial literary executor, she's freed up everything. So just this year, I haven't seen it yet. I read a review review of it just last week. In the last couple of years, she's allowed a woman to edit the letters that O'Connor wrote her mother when she, O'Connor, was at the University of Iowa. I can't wait to read those. The review indicated that the letters are not very saintly, to say the least. <laughs> and in fact, another thing that's in a recent the most recent issue of Flannery O'Connor Review is an interview that Bob Donahue did with Louise Florin Court. And one of the most interesting, she didn't say much about O'Connor in the interview, but one of the most interesting things that she said was that O'Connor was a real brat. She said it twice when she was a child. I thought that was kind of funny. So I think we're going to, we're gradually getting, you know, more insight probably into the real Flannery O'Connor. Does this mean you can re-release the book with your actual quotes in there? I think so. Why not? I mean, that's that's what I said to my sister. I mean, since things are so different and other people have published, you know, other collections of letters, I think it might be worth a try. I haven't given up. I mean, I have a, as a matter of fact, I have, a, I have all kinds of projects going on. I mean, I retired, but thank goodness, mentally, I remain alert. I have a Fitzgerald 
project going on right now, as a matter of fact. Um, it's not a book, an article. That's kind of the introduction to how I got involved with O'Connor work. What did you think of Wise Blood? Wise Blood, you know, was originally published in 1952 and went out of print briefly because obviously at that point it was it was, was not in any way a popular novel. The critics liked it, but she had didn't have much readership. But at any rate, once she had published A Good Man is Hard to Find and other stories and, and continued to publish in magazines, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux wanted to republish, and they wanted her to write an introduction to it. She refused to do that, but she wrote a note that attached to the 1960 volume of Wise Blood, and she just said that her aims were pretty much to convert the unconverted people of her generation to Christianity. And and that's the interesting about thing about her. She was such a devout Roman Catholic, but she really believed that any any genuine faith was was viable. She was not anti Christian. She was anti fake Christianity. The real thing, whatever whatever form it took, she certainly approved of. I'm always deeply touched by it, but it just depends on your sensibility, doesn't it? I mean, he's a fascinating character, but the way he tortures himself, Hayes Motes I'm talking about, tortures himself at the end in order to gain forgiveness is just absolutely repulsive to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. No question. I had read that Wise Blood was originally a series of stories that she kind of refactored into a novel. What was going on with her at Iowa? Back in the late 40s when she went to uh, the workshop, attitude in the country was still that you had to write a novel before you could publish short stories. But her, her forte, I mean, her real power, in my opinion, lies in her short stories rather than the novels. But she thought she was going to, once she knew that she was going to be a writer of fiction, she set out to write the novel. And at, uh, her, her uh, thesis for her MFA was a collection of short stories. But she had the novel in mind. But what she did, and it's what most a lot of people used to do and still do, some writers, she published parts of the novel as short stories. That's where she started. She published four four short sections out of the novel before she had the novel completely put together. Basically, they're the same story. The changes that she made were probably primarily editorial, you know, like diction. I don't think she changed. Like one of the stories she published early became the first chapter of the of the novel, which has Hayes Motes on a train. He's headed, He's just been released from the military, and he's headed back to his hometown, and he's on a train. And I think the episode primarily that she includes in that chapter were in the original. What were some of the biggest challenges writing your book? Well, the main challenges were that it wasn't approved. And there, there were many people that I was, wasn't able to talk to because when I started the thing, I didn't know that Sally Fitzgerald was attempting to write a biography herself. And it was an approved, it was, see, O'Connor's mother was still alive then. She didn't die till 1995. 
So when I was working on the thing in the in the very late 80s and into the early 90s, she was she was still in control of everything. So she had chosen Sally Fitzgerald to write the biography. In a way, rightly so, because Sally Fitzgerald was O'Connor's friend. She and her then husband were both close friends of O'Connor. Probably, if one of them would should have written the, the biography, it should have been the husband rather than Fitzgerald. Know this? Fitzgerald's biography was never finished. It was never finished. And then, after she died, and she died in the she died somewhere in the nineties. I've forgotten the exact date. Then this other guy named Bill Sessions, who was also a friend of O'Connor, was for about ten years was writing another biography of Flannery O'Connor. I mean, and he lived until about I think he died about two thousand fourteen. He didn't finish it either. And according to something that I read lately, nobody knows what happened to his manuscript. Direction that I took in the biography, though, the kind of things that I did in it enabled. I was still able to talk to people in in the various parts of her life. I, I was able to interview some of her cousins in Savannah. I sent out questionnaires to everybody who was in her class at Georgia State College for Women. Decide you're going to do something, and if you work hard enough at it, you can get results. But my book didn't. I mean, it still sells a little bit, but. If you're if you if you can't get a real publisher, then you go to the academic publishers. The University of Tennessee Press published my book. University presses can't don't have the money to really promote work books. So you know, it sold. It sold. I didn't make any money. I didn't write it for the money. I wrote it because I wanted to write it. What were some of the biggest challenges writing your book? Remember, she left Milledgeville to go to school. At she didn't want to return to Milledgeville. She went first to New York. She didn't like New York, but she met the Fitzgerald, who allowed her to live with them. And they were living in Connecticut out in the country, and they had an apartment over their garage or something. And she lived with them, and and she's still only in her early 20s at that point. And after she'd been with them about a year and a half, she fell ill with that lupus and you know she was she was so incapacitated that she didn't have any choice but to go back to Milledgeville. And then she didn't have any choice. She made the choice to dedicate her life to writing, so that except for the correspondence and except for the lectures that she gave once her health stabilized, she didn't have much of a life. I mean, there's not much to find out. The interesting things about her being bratish and being kind of insolent with her mother when she was in Iowa, those are, I didn't know that that at the time, but they're no big deal either, right? I mean, she's only 39 when she dies. And, And during her lifetime, she published, as you know, the two novels and the two collections of stories. Everything else that's come out since, and in fact, the second collection of stories, uh, everything that rises must converge didn't come out until after she died, except that, unlike some other people who, who do deathbed work, she had planned that collection completely before she died. But no, I wasn't shocked by anything. She was a solitary kind of person. Maybe that was the most striking thing. Because she's an only child, I guess, she had a hard time with friendships. When she was a little girl, her mother controlled 
the people that you could see, the children, other children that you could see. And then, I don't know, I, I have an only child, too, and I know how they are. You know, they're, they they grow up with a kind of privilege that makes them think that maybe they're superior. And she was brilliant. O'Connor was brilliant. So she never really had strong friendship people. The friendships that she had later through the letters were the strongest relationships, I think, that she had in her life. Who did she correspond with the most? The woman from Atlanta, Betty Hess. She met, wrote to her early after Wise Blood came out. That woman was a very, for, for about six or eight years, that woman was a very close correspondent with her. Converted to Roman Catholicism, and that pleased O'Connor to know just to a, a huge extent. Then she fell away from religion. So that kind of ended their correspondence a couple of years before O'Connor died. But that that was sort of a you know a disappointment to her to O'Connor that this woman that she'd helped to find faith lost it. Another one was Marriott Lee who was the sister of the young guy who was president of Georgia College after O'Connor moved back, Marriott Lee. I'd say those two and another woman named Cecil Dawkins were probably the people that she was closest to as far as extensive correspondence is concerned. What did you think of the movie of Wise Blood? I think the thing was good. I think thing that bothered me about it a little bit, the casting was wonderful, I thought. I thought that Hayes and uh, Enoch Emery couldn't have been uh, improved on. And uh, also the blind preacher, they, they were all very well done. But they had, to, I guess, because of the time frame, they, they set it up a little bit in time. And you remember the car. You remember, remember in this book, the automobile is the Essex, which is an, an ancient car. And they used some kind of like a 1950 Ford or something. I remember when they pushed it over the bank. But I, th- I thought the I thought the movie I think the movie's really quite good. He probably told you this. I think Sally Fitzgerald did the costuming for the thing. There's a mention in the movie of an injury Hayes gets during the war, but he doesn't say what it is. Do you have any insight on that? I'm glad you brought this up. The only thing that I find wrong with the book is. O'Connor's, and and this is a little thing, it's not major, it's a little thing. She didn't tell us early enough about that injury and about his ability to be on a government pension. I wonder wonder when I first read the thing years and years ago, how did this man live? He comes into, well, we find out at the very end of the novel that he has the pension. There is a place in the novel, though, that he has shrapnel that's still left in his body. It, that's mentioned in the thing. It's early in the in the novel that we get the background. I thought about Larry Brown's father, who went into the military and battles all over Europe. Well, apparently, as she envisions Hayes Motes, he had that same kind of background. Maybe she should have given us a little more detail. Do you think? I think the thing that really happened to him, and this is my interpretation. He went into the military thinking that it would be an easy thing and that, that he could hold on to his religious faith even under those circumstances. And, of course, he found out quickly that nobody much else cared about Jesus and religion. And that 
doomed his faith, I think. I don't think she meant him to be injured. Remember, he goes to Leora Watts, and he also has sex with, with Lily uh, Sabbath Hawks. Remember, it kept, about kills him. Remember, that the morning after with the, with the washcloth across his face, he's suffering mightily. Can you tell me more about the Fitzgerald piece you're working on? What got me going on this? Fitzgerald, Zeld, and Scott have become the subjects of so many novels and plays. And that's what I've had the article on, all the different versions of the way they've been handled in these. Well, really starting with Hemingway. You remember Hemingway? I don't know if you know this or not, but Hemingway, while Fitzgerald was still alive, wrote the Snows of Kilimanjaro, you know that story, dude. Everybody knows it, I think. Well, and he, you may know that, that when he published it in Esquire magazine, he actually named Fitzgerald as being ruined by money. He actually used Scott Fitzgerald's name in the story. So that's where I started. I mean, I, I got a hold of the, you know, I interlibrary loan, got the story and found the exact passage in which, in which he insults him. And, of course, Fitzgerald was just, you know, he was irate as he should have been. You don't, you don't, it's almost libelous, it seems to me, to, to take a, somebody who's been your friend and insult him in that kind of way. But that's where I started with things. And then I ended up with a couple of recent novels. So it's, it's getting ready to send it somewhere, probably to the Scott Fitzgerald Review. Sounds like the logical place to send it. Professor Cash, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, thanks so much. All right, up next, we're going to hear from writer-producer Michael Fitzgerald. Obviously, I want to ask you about Wise Blood, but do you mind if I ask you how you kind of got into the business? Because this was one of your earliest projects. It was my earliest project. I got into the business writing screenplays, and I went to Los Angeles. I was a teacher in Rome, and it and many of my friends were people involved, foreigners, Americans, Brits, who were involved in the motion picture business and um, uh, living in Rome. In particular, a couple of writers, and called Stephen Geller and a man called Harry Craig, great Irish screenplay writer. I wrote a screenplay and um, had some adventures in, uh, in Morocco during the making of The Man Who Would Be King. And I got really interested in writing screenplays, so I went off to Los Angeles with my brother, my older brother, and we started writing screenplays. And this was in 1975, I guess. And after a while, it, you know, it occurred to me that you know, there were no cell phones in those days. You, you, you waited by the phone for someone to call you back, and it was an endless wait, and we didn't know anybody, and it was very frustrating. So I, I thought, well, you know, this is not the right way to go. I should really pick something that I think is fabulous and try to get it made, and essentially, you know, impose myself on the scene, rather than wait for the scene to impose itself on me. You know, my, my parents were the literary executors of Flannery O'Connor. Wise Blood had been written in their house in Connecticut when Flannery was 20 or 21 years old. It was a fabulous novel, and I thought, if I can actually get this one made, it'll knock their socks off, one way or another. So my brother and I adapted it, on the theory, on the premise, that I didn't know anything. And when you don't know anything, the best thing you can do is try to find a person that knows everything. John Houston might be ideal for it. I had gone to school in Ireland, and while he was living a big life in Ireland, so I read about him a lot. And he was a kind of an iconic figure in cinema at the time. And I thought, if I could interest him in this, 
I'd have a leg up. And so I found his phone number in Mexico and I called him up. I told him that he wouldn't know me because I'd never done anything, but that I had something he might find interesting. And he asked me to send it to him and I did. And he called me back within a couple of days and said, this is very interesting. Come down to see me. So I spent a week or so with him in Puerto Vallarta in Mexico, after which he essentially committed to making the picture. And it took me two or three years to set it up because I didn't know anything. And it probably would have taken me two or three years to set it up, even if I had not But eventually, ready to go in early 1979. And that's when we made the picture. How did you approach the adaptation? We approached the adaptation pretty much the way that John Huston approached the adaptation of The Maltese Falcon, which was the first film he directed, which is to use the dialogue from a novel almost exclusively and follow the plot, if you will, as closely as possible. So we adhered to the novel as, as closely as we could. The, the dialogue is hilarious. Uh, it's a very, very funny story. So we really took as much, we stole as much from the book as we That was our idea. There's a screenplay floating out there by, I think, Jerome Cass is the gentleman's name. Do you know anything about this? There were a number of screenplays. There was a, there was a Hollywood producer who had owned the rights to this, a very well-known producer, actually, whose name now escapes me. I had owned the rights to this for about 10 or 12 years before I, I came into the scene, and had never been able to put it together. But I'm sure that he'd had a script or several scripts written, and this may be one of them. Did you get to meet Flannery O'Connor when you were coming up? Well, she was a very close friend of my parents. And she was there when I was born until I was two years old in Connecticut, essentially living with us in Connecticut. And then when family moved to Italy, she came once in, in uh, I guess, the late 50s or early 60s with her mother, Regina, on the way to Lourdes. Uh, her mother had prevailed on her. She, had, she died of lupus. And uh, in the last few years of her life, she was quite crippled because in those days, the only thing you could do about lupus was give massive doses of cortisol. And the effect of cortisol you know, in those doses is to essentially decalcify your bones so you can't bear your own weight. So her mother had prevailed on her. Flannery wouldn't have thought about this herself, but her mother insisted that she go to Lourdes and see if she, there was a cure. And so they, they, they came through and my mother took them to, to Lourdes. In, I don't know where it was, 1959, 1960. So I remember her then coming through. But then after all, she, then after she died, you know, she was only 39 years old when she died. I mean, she, she was basically stuck at home with her mother from the age of 22 on because she got her first attack of lupus on the train on the way back to Millersville, Georgia, from Connecticut, from my parents. And after that, she was really too weak to, to do anything. She had to be essentially looked after physically. So she spent pretty much the rest of her life at Andalusia Farm, which was her parents' place, her mother's place. How was it that as the project came together? I mean, you said you didn't have that much experience. What did you do to kind of bring all those pieces? I was incredibly lucky. John Houston was uh, really wonderful and incredibly patient. And, and not only that, but really collaborative. For example, he was already, you know, to travel to Georgia for a week of rehearsals. And we still didn't have a Sabbath lily. Good Lord, we tried everything to find one. And I was in his agent's office in Los Angeles watching some, some, some videotapes. And I saw one of Amy Wright. And I thought, ah, here she is. This is the one. And uh, Miros Foreman happened to be in the room. And I said, listen, I don't want to make a terrible mistake. I'm going to suggest this person to charm for a leading part in the movie. And I, I had him watch the thing. And he thought she was wonderful. So I called John and I said, John, I, I, I think we've got her. 
And he said, well, if you think we've got her, we've got her. So I hired her without him even seeing her. So he was he trusted me very much in that way. And my role is essentially, my, my um, you know, I was smart enough to get a man called Tommy Shaw, who was a legendary first assistant and production manager in Hollywood and who had done many films with John. And he basically ran the operation because I didn't, I'd never been on a movie set before. And I would just sort of sit next to John and, uh, and, and, and just keep asking, why are you doing it this way? What, what is, you know, the reason for all of these things? And he would tell me. And occasionally I would have a suggestion and he would say, all right, let's do it that way as well. And we would do it my way. And then we would look at the rushes in the, in the evening. And then he would say to me, well, now, now what do you think? And I would say, I think your way is better. <laughs> Which it inexorably was, and so I learned an awful lot. But it was, it was a, you know, his. We had one of his sons working on the picture. My mother and my wife did the costumes. I mean, it was a kind of a family business. Tommy Shaw had three kids working on it. It was essentially, you know, a triumph of nepotism, the whole endeavor, uh, but a lot of fun. And unfortunately, it spoiled me because I thought, ah, this is what movie making is. It's fantastic, and it isn't. <laughs> What a treat to be able to kind of sit at the feet of the master. I mean, hear that voice, you know, that stenorious voice that he had was always so wonderful. Oh, he was great. He was, he was really great. He was a great friend. A wonderful man. Yeah. How was the shoot? How did that come together for you? Well, we were down in, in Macon, Georgia, in, you know, for, for about, oh, I would say eight weeks. It, it took us eight weeks to shoot the picture, and it, it went incredibly smoothly. There were no, no issues of any kind. It was, it was fantastically easy. Um, the only incident I can remember is this: the actor who played Enoch Emery. At some point, he was doing a take, and he and he did something silly. And uh, John said, "Cut! We've got to do it. We have to do it again." And he got frustrated. He, he was carrying that little mummy, and uh, he got frustrated, and he kind of threw it to the ground, and it broke. That got uh, John's attention, and uh, he gave him a, a good scolding. That that we all had to wait for half an hour. And it was cold, and you know. And uh, it was an imposition on everybody. And But aside from that instant, it all was just fabulous. We played poker on weekends. Uh, every Sunday, we were staying in a hotel in Macon. I think we took, I, didn't, I don't think we paid anything for the hotel because we won so much money at poker from the manager of the hotel. I think the, uh, the cost of staying there was taken care of. That cast is just amazing. All of those people. You definitely did write with Amy Wright. She was fantastic in it. Absolutely wonderful. And Brad was wonderful. And Harry was, was, Harry only had a couple of weeks work. And and, uh, so then he flew back to Los Angeles, but he would fly back every Sunday to play poker with (laughs) And And we carried on a poker game for years for that, you know, uh, all around the world. Anyway, uh, it was good. What are some of your best memories of making the film? We had a wonderful editor who was then who edited the last seven of John's pictures after that, a man called Roberto Silvi, who whom I had identified as he had done a picture that I don't remember the name of with the director of The Exorcist, the writer of The Exorcist. And I thought it was very well edited. And he he was with us and he's remained a lifelong friend. He's edited many of my movies over the decades. You know, there, it was just a small band of people in this rather remote place, which was Macon, Georgia at the time. This was long before it became a hub for for pilots and, and flight attendants flying out of Atlanta, a bedroom community for them, because it was close enough to Atlanta. It was a very small little remote place, which incidentally, since I, I heard a lot of remarks with the people you were speaking to last night about the timelessness of the, of the movie, that, they weren't, that was absolutely deliberate. As was the misspelling of the name John. 
because we had a child to do the year. Really, what we were hoping to sort of subliminally suggest is that people were not supposed to take this literally. That, that was not the idea of this. But no, we had a wonderful, it was just a wonderful, easygoing time. How was the film received when it came out? It was a triumph. It was, I think, the thing, the way that John put it to me was, you know, don't, don't think this is the way of the world because this will never happen again. It went to Cannes and it was, you know, it, it was, nobody had ever seen anything like it in, in essence. Celebrated at Cannes, it came to New York, it went to the New York Film Festival. Vincent Canby, who was the great authority on cinema at the time, but at the New York Times, in those days, you know, there were two or three or four critics who really mattered. And it was, it was a different universe from now, where you go on, on, on Rotten Tomatoes and every Tom, Dick, and Harry is insulting you. Vincent Canby wrote three reviews, three or four reviews of it. Three or four. And it was, it was, it really was a, it was considered one of John's great movies. Uh, I, I, I couldn't have hoped for anything better. I'd hoped to address a few of the things that, um, yeah, people were saying, because I would have loved to have been part of that discussion. Because I, I thought many, many of the things that, that uh, they very cleverly saw what was going on. But in some instances, I thought they, they, you know, they, they failed to see uh, another way of looking at it, perhaps. The thing with the car is wonderful. E- Enoch Emery for Flannery but was essentially a, a caricature of, the, of an existentialist. The man who goes from obsession to obsession. And there's only another obsession ahead of him because none of them are satisfactory, which is the, you know, the, the, uh, the problem of the existentialist. The car, essentially, her making fun of the modern age in, in some ways, you know, it is Hazel Motz's way of getting away from himself. And when his, his only method of the of escape is taken away from him by a policeman who could be seen in a sort of way as his guardian angel brings him back to himself, then the only, there's only one thing left to do. And as Flannery said, that if he'd have been educated Catholic, uh, he'd have gone off to a monastery. But, but uh, what could someone from his background and his culture do is do the only thing that the other guy didn't have the guts to do, but should have, and that is to blind himself for Jesus. And he finally realizes that Jesus is not a trick on makers but is the only thing he's ever wanted. He has to make amends. He only knows how to make amends, you know, by wrapping barbed wire on himself and walking on broken glass and, and going where he's going. And so his, the salvation of his Mugs is uh, something which is inherent in the story. And it isn't done out of anger in the end. You know, his anger is gone. He's just going where he's going. Unstoppable. And I would have made that point, I suppose, by then in the discussion. Well, I hope we didn't get things too wrong. I don't believe there's a wrong or a right about anything. There is an intention by the people who are who are um, um, crafting the the, uh, the work, which is then being looked at, which is occasionally interesting to see what their point of view is. Other than that, you're right, wrong, who cares? Yeah. How soon after that did you start working on Under the Volcano? John and I had another project that we were, were working on because when I was visiting him, which I did many, many times before we did Wife's Blood, one of the people that lived in Puerto Vallarta and who was very friendly with, and in fact, to whom I brought medicines a number of times from Los Angeles was Richard Burton. 
And Richard had wanted to make play the part of the consul, the leading man, in, in a, a very famous novel at the time called Under the Volcano. And so we had spoken about Under the Volcano, about doing Under the Volcano, and I had tried to get the rights to it. But the rights were so, so many people had had them. It was, you couldn't get it. You, could, you couldn't get insurance. I would have had to spend half a million dollars in legal fees to try and clear the rights. So I abandoned that project. And John and I were going to make a film called The Rack about a tuberculosis asylum in Switzerland before penicillin came about. A really wonderful story. And uh, we got very far along, very, very far along. And then it fell apart, the film fell apart. And just then, John called me and he said, you know, these, these uh, the people have called me and they have cleared the rights to Under the Volcano. Would you like to make it with me? And I said, hell yes. And uh, within three months of that, we were actually shooting the picture in but we'd spent a couple of years on this other project, that went there, which happens all the time. Under the Volcano just feels like such a John Huston project, even when you're just reading the book. It's like, I can see John Huston making this. Well, very much so. It was right down his alley. The sort of divinity of the alcoholic. I mean, the guy who is more drunk he gets, the more sober he gets. It is a very Houstonian <laughs> sort of <laughs> Play, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how it was working with Miklos Jansko? Miklos, for those people who don't know who he is, 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 is one of the great figures in, really in the history of cinema. His films, which are generally, at the time that he was making most of his films, there was nothing digital. It was all on film. And so you used 1,000-foot mags of 35-millimeter stock, and that, which was roughly 11 minutes or so. That you had at your disposal, and he became extraordinarily adept, largely because they wouldn't give him any money. So he had to figure out a way to do everything he wanted to do, but do it in one shot, as opposed to spending weeks doing what everybody else does. And so he he packed his images more than anyone else, I think, that ever made film. He was able to just pack in the most information, visual information, of anybody ever. And so he needed essentially a week or a week and a half to make a movie, because he would do 1,000-foot mag a day, 11 minutes a day. And he would do it in one shot. So all day would be spent preparing that one shot, and then it would go. And everything worked like clockwork, because he was a genius. There was never any script with him. I met him first. He was, um, he was doing a semester teaching at Harvard. He'd been invited by a rather wonderful man from Yugoslavia, who was the, uh, the curator of the Harvard Film Archive, to come over. and. It wasn't Dushan Makaveya, maybe it was, to, to come over and teach. So I met him there. I had a film in Berlin. I think it was Mr. Johnson. I made a film with Bruce Barris, which was Mr. Johnson in 1990, that went to the film festival in Berlin, actually won the silver there. And there I saw that there was a Miklos Jansha film playing. I'll never forget it. In just a little local theater. I don't speak Hungarian. The subtitles were in German. So I brought somebody with me who spoke German. And it was called God Runs Backwards. And uh, I, was, I was just completely, totally floored by this. I thought, this is absolutely astonishing. I've never seen anything like this in my life. So I called him up from Berlin, and I said, Miklos, I know that they won't let you make pictures anymore, because in Soviet Union, the whole sort of system had collapsed. I guess in 92, 91 or something. But I said, you know, whenever you want to make the next picture, consider it made. So that was in February. In May, he calls me at the end of the semester. I already said, well, okay, now I'm ready to make my movie. <laughs> I was a little taken aback. 
And I said, oh, all right, let me read the script. And he said, but there is no script. And I said, well, when do you want to go? And he said, well, I'll be ready in a week to shoot. And I said, well, how much do you think it's going to cost? And he told me how much he thought it was going to cost. And I said, okay, go, 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 go start. I'll join you there in a week and I'll find the money. So I found myself, I went to a friend of mine in Germany who was a very well-known producer. And I called him up and I said, listen, you know, you can have all the worldwide rights to this thing, but I'm making a picture with Mikas Yenich and I need X amount. And he said, okay, you can have it. So I got the money right away and I went over and I spent two weeks with Mikas. I went with my friend Robert Gardner, who's a great ethnographic filmmaker, who made a documentary of our shooting of the, of the movie that we made called Dancing with Miklos, which is absolutely superb. Anyway, the Russians had just departed, and, and everybody thought they were coming back because Gorbachev had just been kidnapped. And the whole thing was <laughs> it's an incredible moment in Hungary. And with Miklos, it was the most wonderful. You know, it was so easygoing. The, the troop, his troop must have been five people. You know, they would start leisurely at 11 o'clock in the morning. People would start turning up on the set, and he'd turn up around noon. They'd do little rehearsals with the actors. They'd rehearse the camera. They'd build long tracks as the camera was never stopped moving. There were 180, 190, 200 moves on the camera. It was amazing. And they'd rehearse little bits of it and everything. And come when, when then when the light was right, come around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it was, let's go. And then it was the most fantastic dance with 11 minutes, 12 minutes, you know, actors sort of running around, changing clothes desperately while the camera was not looking at them. You know, the whole thing was just magisterial. And then at the end of the 11 minutes, like with five feet left on the thousand foot mic, because he knew it that well, and that was it for the day. Everybody go home. <laughs> and this lasted for a week and the film was finished. It took one morning to cut it together. And then after that, he would write the script. He made sure that the actors were never on screen when they were saying any words. So, uh, so after that, they would, they would, you know, depending on what he, what he liked and what he didn't like and everything else, he would shape the dialogue. It was, it was an amazing experience. Really, really wonderful. It was wonderful. And I actually, I took it, I remember, to the festival in Montreal. There was this little guy whom I'd known because I'd been on the set of, uh, of On Golden Pond. I don't remember his name now. The guy who directed that movie. And he was the head of the jury. And uh, in Montreal, and he he rushed out of the screening at the film and came up to me and he said, who is this guy? Who is this guy? What is this? Who is this kid? I said, I brought Miklos with me. So I said, kid, here I introduced him to the 75-year-old man. <laughs> you know, the whole thing was, 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 it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Wonderful experience. And then I, I only saw Miklos once, once after that when I took the uh, film I'd made called The Pledge to Moscow. And uh, I found myself in a dacha outside of Moscow with Jack Nicholson, Sean Penn, and uh, being sort of lured off into the woods and suddenly being confronted with a table in the woods with a simple samovar and a few chairs. And we were told to sit down and, and Miklos came in. And then Vladimir Putin came in. <laughs> it was the most surreal thing. And of course, every time Putin would, would turn to some and talk to Jack or something, Miklos would go, <laughs> oh god it was just wonderful the pledge is amazing i love that film i was fortunate enough to see that theatrically and just have loved it ever since you know it came from a novel of friedrich durenmatt great fan of durenmatt and i thought it was a perfect vehicle for jack nicholson and i had known for a long time because he was had been living with don houston's daughter for many years 
and and it was he loved it. So so we of course had to transpose the action to the contemporary day in the United States because he was living in Switzerland in the 1950s. One of the, the wonderful moments I remember in that, you know, he had given him to read during the, during the shooting. Had given him to read a novel by a wonderful South African writer called J. M. Fitzy Fitzy, or Waiting for the Barbarians, which I had in mind to make even then. And uh, as as a picture, at a certain point in the last scene of the picture, you see the Nicholson character who fate has taken a very strange turn, and everything he thought he was doing right, which he was doing right, sheer happenstance, went completely to hell in a way that nobody could have foreseen. And that has sort of turned him, he's gone sort of slightly inside. Before the first take of that, he, he, he called me over and he said, I want you to, I want you to look at this take, understanding what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is that I'm reprising the character of the magistrate in Waiting for the Barbarians at the end of Waiting for the Barbarians. That's what I've got in mind as I do what I do. So it gave me a glimpse into how Jack did those things. It's wonderful. How many projects do you have going at once, do you think? As a rule, one, because I'm not intelligent enough or, or uh, skilled enough to have many things going at once. If, if I don't have my entire concentration, the world of motion pictures is, stunningly enough, very difficult. To get anything made is very difficult. It's extraordinarily competitive. It's a nightmare, essentially. I, I have to concentrate on one thing until it's done. When it's done, I go I, out. I have things in mind that I want to do, of course. My concentration as a rule is on that. This has changed slightly in the last few years because the, the world of, of motion pictures is ebbing and it's being taken over by a different kind of narrative, which is um, the preferred narrative of the audience, I think, nowadays, which is, you know, streaming television. It's a different kind of narrative. It's the difference between, uh, you know, reading uh, Joyce and Dickens. They're, they're, they're different. And so I'm, I'm beginning to dip my toes into, into that, uh, which requires a whole other. I'm reinventing myself to try and cope with that world. Did I read right that your brother's doing another O'Connor adaptation? I heard something of that some years ago, but I didn't think it was likely to happen in the heaven. What are you working on these days? I'm just beginning to develop Justice as a six-hour, one-season miniseries. And I'm working on... My son, Kiran, is a very fine screenwriter, and I'm working, I have all my children are screenwriters. One of them that only does sort of Aquaman type of stuff, so I don't, not in that, in that universe. But the other two are very fine screenwriters. Kiran has, has, you know, wrote the film on Snowden. He wrote, um, a film for me called Holmesman, uh, John Jones. He is the lead writer on a television series now for Chris Nolan's brother called Fallout, which is being shot at the moment. And he and I are, have a project along with Howard Gordon and Alex Ganza, who are the two people who brought us Homeland, which is one of my favorite shows, uh, on Cuba, starting in the 1950s. That's very, very advanced. We're, we're soon to be making that. Mr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. It's an absolute delight. And you're, you're very welcome, and, and all good luck to you. Up next, we're going to hear from Enoch Emery himself, Mr. Dan Shore. This seems to be pretty early project in your career, and I'm so curious, how did you even get into acting? There's a Broadway show called Equus in the 1980s, and it starred Peter Firth and then Tommy Hulse replaced him, and then I replaced Tommy Hulse. 
I grew up in New York and I went backstage to the show. I had seen it. I looked like Peter Firth. I could have been his brother's image. And um, I told him I just arrived in town and I'm here. This part for me is playing. And they said, okay, shit. And I got an audition. They thought I was this English boy who showed up. And I got the audition, got an agent from my high school because of my chutzpah, and got the part. And then I was flown out to Los Angeles, a miniseries called Studs Lonegan, which right off the tail of that, and started playing Studs Lonegan. And they flown out to with Brad Dourif, by the way. And I'd also worked Ned Beatty before that, but it was my voice was with my first movie. It's the first movie I ever did. I had done TV movies, miniseries, but that was the first movie. Do you remember the audition process? Oh, yeah. It was in Paul Conner's office. Paul Conner was this master agent and was John Houston's man. And I remember going to the Paul Conner agency on Sunset Boulevard and the Sunset Strip. And of course, I had it memorized. Uh, I read the book. I had it memorized. I knew who John Houston was. You know, I knew the Maltese Falcon. I know what's going on here. As far as I'm concerned, I'm meeting with royalty, Genghis Khan. I mean, I'm meeting with a man. I did not shower for like a week. And I went in and I was in Ever. And he said, I will see you in Georgia, young man. Like that. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I am now 65 years old. Um, and I was I haven't talked about Wise Blood for a long time, but it's the best movie I've ever been in. I thought it would always be like that. I knew it wouldn't all be John Houston. But I thought that my career would always be that great. And I thought, I'm going to be playing the bigs. You know what I mean? John Houston is the Yankees. If you have any baseball acumen, when you get up to play, you're a Yankee. You're nothing less. You're at the top of your game. And he puts you at the top. Yeah, I thought it would always be that way. So what was your experience like when you got down to Georgia? It was amazing because, of course, I had read John Houston's biography that just came out. And I read that he picks on someone every film and takes a scapegoat. And my night before leaving, I partied and slept through the airplane. I knew that John Houston was going to rip me an asshole for eight weeks. I got on an afternoon flight and uh, showed up in Georgia in the evening and nothing had been planned. It was no problem whatsoever. The producers met and we had a great time. And, and I knew Brad Durham. So, and I knew Ned Baker. So, I mean, when I did Studs Lonegan, which was right before this, I was Studs London, the young Studs London. It was a six-hour miniseries. First two hours was me and my gang. The second hour was Harry Hamlin was me. Brad Dourif was his best friend, Danny. So my best friend, Kevin O'Connor, was the young Brad Dourif. So, but I, we all knew each other. We were all gangs in a room, and we all had to you know, blend into each other. So we knew each other. And so I arrived in Georgia in, in Macon, which is, this is the South, it's the deep South. And I come from New York City. So I had never been to the South, and I'd never been to the Deep South, which is quite remarkable. That cast for Wise Blood is just amazing. Everybody is somebody. Oh, yeah. The greatest. And I was thinking about this today. I remember uh, being there. We had a full week's rehearsal when I arrived, and John believed in that, which is really odd because John doesn't like to rehearse as an actor. He fucking hates it. But he loved it for the actors, um, especially since he knew that even though we had given ourselves up to the roles, he knew we were acting. You know what I mean? He knows I'm not from the South. I had come in a camera. And I remember he had all of these roles. So they had a call in for casting, right? 
and they, to bring in anybody who wanted to be in a John Houston movement, small parts. The one-armed man was a one-armed man from Macon. The fat prostitute, that'll be $4, was a real fat prostitute. They went to, to the whorehouse and got the real thing. And then I was in the YMCA across the street on a Saturday playing basketball. And I met this boy who was right out of deliverance. And he goes, my name is Bobby Belize, and I like my basketball. And I said, shit, you're fucking a myth. I hung out with him for days. And then he told me, I'll audition for this movie. And I auditioned for a part of Enoch Amory. And I said, that's fucking me. Because they met the real God. And they were thinking, do we get the actor? Do we get the real God? What are we going to do? And I started to become him without them knowing it. So I became him. And we spent a lot of time together, this kid, at the YMCA. And I mean, I was freaked out because I thought I was going to lose my part, which wasn't the case. They just happened to, you know, when you meet the real thing, it's real. Could he handle all this dialogue? I don't think so. But was he real? Oh, yeah. And the miracle was that I found him. You have such energy in the film. How do you get up to that level and stay at that level? I still do that. You see, I'm 65 and I still have that. I think all actors have that. I just think that that's what we do. We're communicators and we pass energy. Different kinds of energy. Mine is more up, up tempo and some are low tempo, but that tempo is pure energy. I mean, Woody Harrelson plays everything down. It's not down. He has an energy that is exudes out of the system. I think it's just something that translates. Translate that little mummy that you carry around, what was that thing? That was a prop. I mean, someone built an actual mummy. You know, that's what mummies look like. If you've been down to Mexico and seen a mummy, I know John Houston has, and I have too. It looks like that. They really look like that. You know, preserved humanity. But they had, a, they had an artist built that. You were talking about the rehearsal process, and I'm curious, did much change during that process, or was it pretty much locked to the script? Locked. I mean, we had writers who were there, Benedict and Michael Fitzgerald, who were brilliant people, and John Houston, who's a brilliant writer. What are we going to do? And I improvise in everything I do. Uh, that's what my, my, uh, my metier, that's what I'm really actually makes my work fun. I didn't do that. I, mean, I didn't dare. I didn't think of it. Never crossed my mind. And I think John said, just, I just want this word for, because we're also dealing with Flannery O'Connor. So we are dealing with a place and a time that she defines. So there's no way of taking Shakespeare and changing it. You can edit it, but you can't change the language from the space and time. The same thing with Flannery O'Connor. Do you have any favorite memories of the making of the film? When I think of memories, I don't think of, I think of several things while shooting the film. Shooting one scene that I will never forget it stands out. I still have chills but what i remember is being in this little hotel like a holiday inn in the middle of macon georgia and every night we would have dailies and of course i've been doing tv and since then i've made i don't know how many movies it's the only movie i've ever been sat in on dailies and john houston wanted us to sit in on day because we're filmmakers we're collaborators we're partners john houston would elevate us you know, nobody knew that I was bright. I was this dumb little 18-year-old being Enoch Emmer. So I was shutting off my brain cells. And he asked of us what he asked of himself, which is a director, a writer, creator, producer, collaborator. So we all watched Dailies every night. And I remember one scene that I cheered in Dailies. And I went, wow, they cheered. I mean, cheered. And I was, it was thrilling, absolutely thrilling. 
Well, you have to tell me the scene. Oh, that scene was, I have a long, long walking scene. It says, I got wise blood. The one that tell that I'm walking all the way down the street in Georgia. And it's a long tracking shot. They're in a truck and they're tracking Brad and I. Brad would stop and I'd fumble and we'd keep going and we'd turn a corner and the car is pulling all this way. It's like a three minute monologue showing loneliness in Georgia and place and time, the emptiness of the soul. That was, it was pretty freaking when you watch something that filmmaker who wanted to create a stark scene and a stark human trying to connect with another human who is also stark, <laughs> you know what I mean? Empty, wanting to be filled. It's, it's this beautiful collaboration of place and time and humans and language. And, and when it all came together, it was screaming applause. I thought it's because I was so good. But no, I realized it was because it fit the scenery. It fit the picture. It became this, um, a movie. That's what a movie is, is when the, the, the vision, the sound, and the humanity blend into one specific moment. And it was created. And I thought, wow, that was one of them. I remember. The movie has a lot to do with uh, the uh, absurdity of religious abuse, you know, of people taking advantage of people. And you think of how many especially in the South, that I, that I experienced, not just the South, but love God and love Jesus and love religion and how many people take advantage of it. And that kind of sweetness. And we see them, you see them on the, in the halls of the Capitol. These people that are getting played so psychotically and so manipulatively. And to watch these sweet people getting used and abused for nefarious purposes, it's horrifying to me. And Enoch Emery would have been a, might have been one. He needed a reason to live, and he might have been one, without a doubt. Would have been tripped on his own gun, but no, but he would be. <laughs> How was it shooting in Georgia at the time? You talked about kind of meeting the locals and everything. Were there any problems? You being the big Hollywood people? No. You know, I remember meeting the mayor of Macon, Georgia. The first thing he said to me, Dan Sean, nice to meet you. You need a gun? I said, what? I can get you a gun tomorrow. And I'm like, no, thank you. No, I'm from New York. No, no, no I don't need a gun. And I was a little bit freaked out. But, and then walking down the street in Georgia. But the other thing was, I think I was the first Jew that anybody met. And I got this problem that I'd like to announce it. I'm not playing one. I look like one. I was not being one, you know. But I just said, I, oh, I'm Dan Sharp, Jewish. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, you're a Jew? Jew. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Unbelievably nice people. Unbelievably, that's me. And just I'd walk down the streets and see layers of, of because Macon, Georgia is not Atlanta. We shot in Atlanta for a little while, which is a real nature city. But Macon, Georgia is an outpost. It, you know, and I know the Allman brothers were there, but they had mullets for a reason. <laughs> it's a real outpost. It's deep, deep religious sound, a lot of inbreeding, a lot of it, not a little of it. good people, but you'd see. Gloriously beautiful people down to clearly inbred. Really amazing. And I'm sure it hasn't changed. It couldn't have changed. You know, the downtown might have gotten newer, but the old town, hey, no way. What did the movie ultimately do for you? I think it gave me a good 20 years of gravitas in terms of my career. In terms of me, it's one of the great experiences of my life. But in terms of me, my career, it gave me 20 years of gravitas. It gave it so that, you know, the Equus gave that to Stoslanning, which gave that to Wiseblood, which gave that to everything that I, anytime I ever had an audition, I'm the guy from Wiseblood. But 
That lasted for about 10, 15 years until the movie disappeared or the casting directors grew out and the new casting directors had never heard of that, which happened because it was an art film. It was never a, I remember I went to the opening of the open, the New York Film Festival. It's a big deal. Um, and um, closed the Cannes Film Festival the same year. That doesn't happen. It was a big deal, a really big deal. It still feels as fresh today as I imagine it felt in the late 70s when it came out. I'm going to assume it does because it's about a time and a place that hasn't changed. And even if it hadn't, it's, it is about that. It is about Flannery O'Connor's weird little world. And, but that, it's so specific. It is so specific. But it feels like a lot of care was taken to be very respectful of her material as well. Absolutely. I mean, John was, what he was, was a, was a great writer and a great translate, trans, translate stories into film. I mean, that, that was it. Understood words, understood images, and he understood how to best tell them. And, and to place yourself in that world and to make a world that doesn't exist. It's the only movie that's ever done that. What are you working on these days? I've been doing theater and I do TV shows. I did um, earlier this year, I did a show, Blacklist. And I play a recurring role of a uh, CIA spy who runs his own company. So a good guy. So that will come back when it comes back. But basically, I'm auditioning and that's it. I'm now back in New York. I was in L.A. for a long time. I do theater. theater. I'm doing theater. I had my own video production company for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, I ran away from the world. I don't know if you know that. I left Hollywood uh, at the age of about 45 and moved to the South Pacific and became a travel videographer and shot travel videographies for six years in Saipan, Guam, Tinian, Rota, Philippines, uh, Hong Kong, uh, and then came back to take care of my parents in New York. And then I started to do theater again and do TV shows and, and be a director at the corporate videos as well. So all of that stuff. But I think since COVID, I've just gotten still. Right now, I'm sitting in that age where I, I used to always be able to generate things. I directed a lot of plays. I produced plays. I, I shot these videos. I shot a, a, a nighttime soap opera in the South Pacific. Wrote it, produced it, directed it, did all of this stuff. I am now, since COVID, at where I sit at my age, I don't want to fucking do it. I want to join somebody's team. I want to join a younger person's team. Somebody who has the energy to start at five in the morning and finish at two in the morning. And I mean, I probably do have the energy to do that, but it's got to be something I need to say at the moment. It's amazing. You think about these things and people are, at my age, I feel young, but people die. I mean, they just, they, they just die. And then anybody my age, it's no surprise. So it's like, you know what I mean? I would think he died too young. No, he didn't. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he did good. He did good. You know, anything else is a bonus, but yeah, it's amazing. I mean, no more Bill Hickey limping around. I loved him and everything. And whenever he would show up, he was just such a treat. He was. And Harry Dean Stanton, that lunatic, um, that was a lunatic. Yeah. How was it to work with him? Oh, I loved it. But, you know, you know how many people were in this cast? Like six. And we ate lunch together every day for two months. One week after the shoot, I saw Harry Dean at a screening in L.A. I said, Harry Dean, he, said, he had no idea who the fuck I was. Now, mind you, I wasn't Enoch Emery anymore. You know what I mean? My eyes got uncrossed. I washed. I mean, the whole shoot of Wise, but I think I took four showers. 
you know, I really believe I did that. You know, everything they tell you to do as an actor not to do, I did it because I was 22 or something and, and it worked and it worked. And, you know, Lawrence Olivier would say, well, try acting, my dear. Well, I said, give me 50 years experience. I'll try acting, you motherfucker. I'm not gonna f- <laughs> no, I will try acting. But back then, it was about really stretching the instruments. You know, so it's like, you have to twist that. You got to do that. And uh, I didn't know how else to get that far that fast and stay there. And one of the things I wanted to mention was Marinelle Santaproche, who's the landlady of that, was a, was a great Georgia actress. She was, if you're talking about death and salesman, she was the mom, Loman in, in Death and Salesman. She was the Atlantis leading actress. She gave me a lot of Southern time, a lot of Southern time, just to, with that wacky little boy I met between him and Marinelle Santaproche, I got a real flavor. And, and then Beatty transforms, you know, he's a transformer. And, and Harry Dean is too. So I can, I can understand that he was a blind preacher. And by the time he left there and his eyes were open, he didn't see anyone. Complete different vision. We all did that stuff, except for Brad Dourif, who's clearly playing himself. And but brilliant. Brad Dourif's a brilliant guy, by the way. I mean, an intellectual. You know, I don't know how many roles I've done in my lifetime where I end up thinking of him in a moment. Because Brad Dourif is this. He'll talk like this or... He doubles the focus. It's a really wonderful thing that he has as a human being. Every now and then I will have a cop. Well, Mr. Short, thank you so much for your time. This was so great talking with you. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. My joy. Take care. And last but not least, we're going to hear from Sabbath Lily, Ms. Amy Wright. I did really want to know how you got into the business. I think I remember reading that you were a model before you were an actress. No, I wasn't a model. Grew up in Chicago, uh, uh, where the University of Chicago is in Hyde Park. My parents worked there. So, you know, we, we lived in, in Hyde Park. And so I was always chasing around the college boys or looking at them anyway. And so there was one I got a big crush on. So in pursuing him, I met his very, very good friend who became my very, very good friend and mentor. He was a filmmaker. He was a, he was a student there, but he made 16 millimeter films. And so he said, well, I, I, I'm making this film with, with Eric, the boy I had a crush on and, and I want you to be in it too. So, and then he said, and, and while we're at it, why don't you go to an acting class? I was about 16. I went, okay. And so, and then I just had a great teacher and she encouraged me and then I kept going. So it was kind of lucky. <laughs> so he's, yeah, well, there's a lot of luck in everything, but I got very interested in it. And then I just, by accident, ended up at Beloit College in Wisconsin, which had the most fantastic theater department that you could ever hope for. And I got a great education there. So I could keep going because all I was doing was plays and learning about it. Another lucky thing. Didn't know it when I went there, just was accepted and wasn't the greatest student in the world. They accepted me. It wasn't too far from my dad really liked the college. He didn't say why. Maybe he suspected that I was going to dig the theater department. That was that. Yeah. And then, and then it was just working really hard and eventually coming to New York to uh, try my luck. What happened when you got to New York? I went to my first equity principal interview because I'd gotten my equity card at Beloit College doing summer stock there. And there was a line of 400 people. And I just went around the corner to the bar and said, I don't know, how can I do this? This is insane. 
But there was a lot of, you know, there was just a lot of off off Broadway then, and, and you could audition for lots of things. And just another lucky thing, an agent walked into some rather strange show I was doing so in some hole in the wall and thought I was interesting, and she called me in, and she started sending me out for things. So that was nice. And then, but so I guess she kind of hooked me up with a couple of, of the jobs. But then someone in the bar hooked me up with Martha Coolidge. Do you know her, filmmaker? Yeah, we actually just talked about Real Genius. Is that a, a later film of hers? Yeah, like 1985, I want to say. And someone said, oh, well, you maybe you got to meet Martha Coolidge. And so she put me in her film, Not a Pretty Picture, I think it's called. And then from that, I met Claudia Wilde, who made Girlfriends. And then Warner Brothers picked up Girlfriends. And I had a nice supporting part in that. So that helped. Another piece of luck. How did you get the role in The Deer Hunter? Oh, I was sent, sent into an audition. Sat around in uh, in some room with Robert De Niro and Michael Cimino, and yeah, it was pretty cool. It was a I just was called in for a meeting, and and they decided I'd be good for one of the bridesmaids. Just talked. They didn't read anything. I just we just sat around. It was like I think it was May first. Must have been like nineteen seventy seven. I think that's the summer we shot that. My the agent must have put me out to the casting person. I was starting to get a little bit known because of girlfriends. I mean, people were now, I was visible. I can say, oh, if they, you know, they, oh, yeah, all right. And I looked really young. And so I was good for stuff. <laughs> so anyway, I was like, yeah, it's all lucky. And that's how I got involved in that movie, which was lots of fun. And yeah, tell me about Wise Blood. How did you get that role? Well, I think Barbara Clayman was the casting person. John Houston wasn't casting it because, you know, he was, elderly and rather ill but i mean he still he was he was fine i mean he went on to make a few other movies after wise but so he wasn't casting it himself which is something he never he said casting is 90 percent of having a good project here he just didn't have the energy to do it so he so they were at the bottom of the barrel i think and i was called in by barbara clayman kind of last minute friday night kind of thing to read some stuff from the script and um they gave me a look and they didn't know how old I really was. And Michael Fitzgerald said, if I'd known how old you really were, I would not have cast you. And I went, well, glad nobody asked, because I was always, I'm very truthful. Oh, how old are you? And I would just pipe up with the age, and, and they'd they look and say, well, you look 14, so now we no, we don't know what to do with you. But I had more experience. I'll be better. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so they didn't thank God. I mean, Michael told me that. He said, so that, but he was very happy, I think, with you know, the way things turned out. So, because so I think the character is about 14, something like that. And I was 25. Yeah, you don't look 25 in that. Well, I didn't, I didn't look my age until I had children. Then I looked older than my age. So I was six months pregnant with uh, my first child when I was on Broadway in Lanford Wilson's Fifth of July playing someone who was 13. And then after they made the... So a TV version of it and had the baby in the meantime and they just couldn't put it together. So Cynthia Nixon played it in the, uh, I guess it was for something for PBS. So that was disappointing, but you know, that's the way it goes. It's fine. So what are your memories of working on Wise Blood? It was pretty bare bones. We were all staying at, I think, the Macon, Georgia Hilton, maybe, was it? Or, the, or it might have been a holiday in. But anyway, nothing fancy, but they, everybody was there and, uh, Oh, it's just great working with Mr. Houston. What could be wrong with that? The you know, script was great. The, the, the book was fantastic. 
the Fitzgeralds were close to Flannery O'Connor. I mean, Sally Fitzgerald, I think, was the co-producer, or she had a lot to do with it, Michael's mother. And they were all, everyone was working really hard to pull this thing off on, on a pretty, pretty small budget. So as far as, I mean, I mean, well, hearsay, what, I mean, I wasn't in on the nitty gritty, but it seemed, I mean, we couldn't shoot any of the night scenes at night. Lots of nighttime stuff in the novel because it's just too expensive. I'm assuming they just did in the daytime because it was cheaper and faster. You know, Houston, he only worked limited hours. I think we were, it was an eight hour day, which on a movie set, of course, it's unheard of. It usually goes 15 hours and gets later and later and later in the day. And this was, we were wrapped at four o'clock every day. Very organized. I mean, he had all his crew with him. You know, he had his script supervisor. I can't think of, I can't think of now. He worked with him on many things. He had his company manager. So he had his group with him to make him, make everything go smoothly. So we were all doing it together. You know, it was a, it was a group effort. Everybody's input was welcome. I had ideas about the script. He, you know, Houston listened. It was, some, he put some of my ideas in. So, you know, he was, you know, he would, he, and he even said, us, I'm not sure I understand this story at all. <laughs> you know, he would be, we were sitting around the table, anybody got, you know, to explain it to me. Pretty every day, you know, just go to work, have your, you know, go have your lunch, take a little nap, go back. There was a Super Bowl while we were there, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. And it was, uh, must have been, well, what year was that movie? I don't even know. Did it come out in 78 or 79? Uh, it came out in 79. So we must have been shooting it in 78, and it was the Super Bowl, the Steelers and the Cowboys, I think. And I think Houston is kind of a gambling man. And so there was a serious betting going on. See, I think it was in his, in his hotel suite with other people during the, the Super Bowl, and they're all running back and forth as the game is progressing and, and shouting. And, oh, it's really a riot. You know, his company manager guy and I mean I'm not I'm not a football fan. So I was just just, just kind of amazed by the whole thing. <laughs> well, I was just they were really they were seriously invested in this game and it was very exciting and they were having fun. How was it working with Harry Dean Stanton? Oh, he was great, you know, he was real mean to me. And I and he says, I'm just working I'm just doing it with the character. He explained to me later that he he was being mean to me all the time because you know, on the set, you know, because he was in character and he thought it would help me. But he was great to work with. I don't even remember how he was mean to me, but I remember maybe it was just one day I'm talking about where he seemed to be being mean to me, Amy, and I, and that he, he was a very nice guy. You also worked a lot with uh, Brad Dorff, of course. How was he to work with? Great. Everybody was, yeah, it was, it was nice. So we were, you know, you go on so many movie sets and there's such a hierarchy. You know, some bigger movies, and just you know, you, nobody cares what you think. Just be in the right place at the right time. You know, you're, you're just a non non entity practically. And this, we were really all in this completely together. Yeah, he was, he was, he was fun. He was very good in it. You know, yeah, we were all we were all doing a good job. So it it, it was fun. I mean, I had this one scene where I discovered he's blinded himself, and I come screaming down the stairs of the boarding house before they called action i went up to mr houston i said what do you want me to do here and he said my god young woman you've just seen a man blind himself he went oh okay i got it <laughs> <laughs> he didn't you know he didn't give a lot of, he didn't discuss you know how to play things much you know he might want to talk about the whole pro you know the whole story or whatever a bit but 
you know, he wasn't into acting lessons or anything. You just, you gotta, you just do it right, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. You talked about making some suggestions. Do you remember any of those? I thought in one place there were there were missing cause and effect of some kind. I'm trying to remember now. And they had cut out this. There's a scene in the car where I'm talking about ethical culture or something. I don't even know what. I'm in the car with him and I'm flirting with him, but I'm also yakking away. It's a long speech about something. And it had been cut out and I got it put back in. So that was nice. It's too bad they couldn't stick even more closely to the text of the novel because some of it was just so perfect. And it just wasn't possible. But I think, you know, they did a great job with you know, just like the two kids are in the car, Hazel and Sabbath, and then they come across on the side of the road, there's a cage with a bird in it and a bear, and the the bear is covered with, with bird poop, and is missing an eye, and the, and the bird has no feathers, and, and the sign on it says, two deadly enemies, have a look free. And, and it was just like came out of this area in this car, and he's, re- you know, and he's kind of resisting her a lot, and she's trying to get him to warm up to her, and I mean, I don't think we could, you know, I don't, we didn't shoot that scene. I don't think we're going to get a bear and a bird and get them all rigged up. But, you know, yeah, Houston was, was open to listening to stuff, people's ideas. Give it a shot. That was nice. You had just such a, an amazing run of roles. I mean, to go from Not a Pretty Picture, fantastic movie, Girlfriends, wonderful, Deer Hunter, Wise Blood, and then Breaking Away, one of my favorite films. Yeah, I have been in some really good films. Yeah, that's nice. That feels good. And I have a bit of a pension, you know, as we all say, not enough. But, you know, people say, well, what, what are you doing? You know, you go, well, I, I haven't been in show business. You know, I, <laughs> you because it's discouraging. You know, you're not, you know, your career is this, that, and the other thing. Lots of dry spells and frustration and all that. You say, well, I may have a pension from being an actor. That's all I leave it at that. And I made my living, sort of. Anyway, yeah, but I, I was in some really nice movies. I've seen the telephone probably more times than I would care to admit. Really? Oh my goodness! Oh, the only time I ever—I mean, yeah, yeah, my, you know, Rip directed that. Yeah, that, and he, and he cast me in that part very much against type. And in fact, the somebody said, Are "You sure that Amy's right for this part?" And so he he, he took me to his hair person, you know, uh, Ellie, oh shoot, what's her name? She's no longer around, but she worked with her a whole lot. And she said, we got to get her all fixed up. So, so, so she got me all fixed up in the look that I have in the movie. And Rip took a picture of me and then he took it back to the, I guess it was the producer. And, and, and he says, uh, and he says, what about this gal to the producer? And he says, now that's honey box. <laughs> and Rip said, that's Amy Wright. Yeah, I, I, I'm very proud of myself in that movie because <laughs> I, I like, you know, it really was a, not the usual for me. Uh, but yeah, it was fun. And then being the old woman behind the hall, the wall, screaming at her in some, some language, some accent I made up. I mean, it was, <laughs> oh well. Yeah, that movie, you know, it's too bad. It, Whoopi had the final cut of it and they cut out this incredible scene in the middle of it. I wasn't in the scene, but no, it was a, the film is really claustrophobic, right? It takes all, the whole thing takes place in the apartment pretty much. And he had this one crazy scene where she's talking, um, that's in a traffic jam on the freeway and it had Severn Darden in it. He was a 
Second City guy, Hervé, Hervé from Fantasy Island, and a, a gal named Barbara Joy in this convertible. Like it was like a complete crazy Fellini-esque moment. And they're on their way to some hot dog convention. They're all dressed up in like, Severin's dressed up like a hot dog. Hervé's in the car and wonderful scene and she didn't understand it. So she insisted it be cut. And Rip said that it just deadened the whole film not to have it. He just needed a little escape. He just needed some crazy-ass scene out the window that that could have happened in a kind of a crazy, in a kind of a strange movie anyway. So it was just uh, a shame. So what have you been up to lately? Well, I spent a long time taking care of Rip. So that was pretty time-consuming. That was so then I haven't really figured it out. In the lab before he got so sick that I really needed to, you know, stay with him, I was doing a lot of directing, uh, directing at the school I work at. So I designed my own program at the school where I was just putting on plays. So I did that for a while and I loved it. And I liked directing a, a lot. So, and I put on, a, I did a lot of stuff. Little productions in the classroom, but they were full, you know, full productions with, you know, everybody learned their lines. An audience came in, we delivered it. And I thought that's the best way to learn. That's a really good way to learn how to act is by, I was getting so sick of just watching scenes because I was a teacher. Scenes in the classroom or doing exercises really had had enough of that. And I myself had learned from doing plays and lots of them. So I decided, let's just put on plays. I did that for quite a while. I really got, I learned a lot and I enjoyed it. I didn't miss being on stage. I liked, I liked being the director. I really like it. I'd like to do more of that. I'm just not sure how, how to go about it. There's ways. There's, there's nothing, nobody's stopping me. It's just me getting motivated to, you know, like I did at the school, stuff together. You, there's always a place to perform something in your living room, for God's sake, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm doing a, a one act festival in the Sharon Playhouse in Connecticut where I, where Rip and I lived together, especially while he was not feeling well. And I'm doing that. That's on next weekend. So I, that's the first thing I've done in quite a while. And I'm enjoying that. It was just a little new one act, 10, 15 minute play that a friend of mine wrote and said, would you like, why don't you direct this? And I went, okay. Yeah. Probably be good for me being in a room of actors again and talk about stuff. So that it was good. It is good. We'll wrap that up this week and not sure what, what the heck I'm doing. Um, Thank you so much for your time. This has been great talking with you. Yeah. Well, good luck with your projects and great. I hope you got something you can use. We did it, man. All right. We're back and talking about wise blood. And normally I have like other movies that people should check out other books, those kind of things. I have to say just the world of Flannery O'Connor in itself is fascinating. I saw a great documentary about her this morning. It was from the PBS uh, American something or other series. And wow, what, what a wild time this woman had in her life. And I didn't realize that she died when she was 39 years old. That just does not seem possible because she did a lot of stuff and touched a lot of people just in that really brief career. No, truly. That was a, an interesting documentary. I saw that you logged that and I watched it as well. It's she lived quite a life in a short span of time. If you watch wise blood after our conversation, um, there's some really interesting 
uh, wise blood anecdotes and just some framing of that uh, in that Flannery documentary. I have to admit something that I always get Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullough's mixed up. And you guys might've seen that in the Dropbox, I had all of these things about Carson McCullough in there. And I don't know why I knew it was Flannery O'Connor, but for some reason I was looking up uh, and I was just like, oh yeah, yeah. Carson McCullough. I guess it's that first name where you don't really know if it's a man or a woman. And then with the Irish type last name, I don't know what it was, but in both women writers that are using names that sound like they could be male, which I know probably helped her out in the early days. That was mentioned in the documentary too. Um, She was very sharp to the uh, irritation of most of her male colleagues. And uh, yeah, no, she didn't correct people when she was submitting stuff and they thought she was a man. Which by the way, has happened to me because Maitland McDonough, you got your Irish and you've got your ungendered first name. And it's not always a bad thing, particularly in horror, frankly, because maybe less now than 40 years ago, but 40 years ago, women's voices about horror were not really respected in a lot of ways. So it didn't hurt to have a name that was not easily gendered. Oh, interesting. Uh, Michael Rooker uh, is in pre-production to be the misfit in a upcoming feature film of the good man is a good man is hard to find a year or two down the road. There'll be that. Yeah. I was looking up some of the other adaptations of her work and there's nothing where it's just like, Oh yeah, this is jumping out at me. Really? It's wise blood. And then I was really kind of curious to see more of the displaced person. They had clips of that in the Flannery O'Connor documentary. And just to see Shirley Stoller, I was just, I'm always love seeing her and Lane Smith was in that and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And then there's a tractor accident in there where I'm just like, oh, she must've really had a thing about machines running over people because it was very similar to what happens to William Hickey. You know, the guy gets crushed by a tractor rather than getting ridden over by Brad Dourif. I also have to say one of the things that has always been a thing with me is seeing movies that involved farm machinery. Every piece of it is more horrifying than the one before. Prime Cut, of course, is, is probably the best example of that kind of thing. But because again, I grew up in a city. That kind of machinery was completely alien to me but to see things like threshers and combines and realize god almighty that they're like monster machines in a really powerful way yeah you don't even need to see someone pick it up just the initial pans over some of that you're just like oof, this isn't right sides but they are scary effing things right and yet they're they're farm tools, non-motorized farm tools, farm machinery. It's its all really, really scary. I mean, you mentioned him before. It's always great to see Harry Dean Stanton. I am not. I don't imagine I'll necessarily complete his filmography, but whenever I see him, it's always a pleasure. Harry Dean Stanton is extraordinary in this movie. It, he is, does not have the biggest role, but he is such a complete character in every way. You know, every, you know everything about him after seeing him on screen for three minutes. You know where he came from, why he does the things he does, and what he's getting away with. The, the way he eggs on Hazel, just like the little jabs. He's like, he's following me. He's like, don't listen to that fanatic up there. Just like those tiny little cuts. He's He was a master. I, I'm sorry we lost him. He lived a long life, though. 
Very glad we got him in Twin Peaks, The Return. This is making me want to go back and watch other John Huston things that I haven't seen because it's like the beginning of his career. I've seen a lot. The end of his career, I saw quite a few, but there's that middle ground where I just have not taken part in a lot of his things. So like uh, Freud or his version of Moulin Rouge, um, you know, like Sinful Davy. I've never even heard of that film. Uh, the Kremlin Letter, I want to see that. The Macintosh Man, Life and Times of Judge Rory Bean. I'm shocked that I've never seen that because that's Milius and Houston. I imagine that it just drips testosterone all over the place. I remember really liking the Macintosh Man. But one of the things that I think about when you talk about Houston is Houston is not an auteur in the way that we define that term. And I think that's one of the reasons that you can miss a lot of his movies because they don't have that deeply personal vision there. He was a great filmmaker and no two ways about it. But I think that if you grew up at a certain time in the seventies for me is, is the real reference point. You were looking for directors who were auteurs put their stamp on everything. And Houston was one of those people who directed so many things that were so different and did not always have a deeply personal stamp, except that they were all relentlessly competent at the, at the very bottom line. <laughs> his first film was the Maltese Falcon. That's his starting point. Come on. Yes, absolutely. And yet you don't see Yeah, him. Big studio guy, big, just uh, kind of a workman director. A workman director. A, a highly skilled workman director. Exactly. Houston was a highly skilled workman director who worked within the system and didn't have a problem with the system, ultimately. He completely understood how to work within it and to do the things he wanted to do. But I think that if you, you know, if I went and looked back, I'm sure I could find interviews where somebody asked him, you know, do you think of, you, of, of yourself as an auteur? He would have said, oh, fuck no. I'm not an auteur. I worked within the studio system. They gave me a script. I looked at it and I said, yeah, I can make this movie. And then I made this movie and I made the best movie I could out of that script. And most of the time, yeah, I thought I made a good movie. I think that's who Houston was. It's interesting. When I was growing up, John Houston movies were kind of a big thing. So things like Annie, that was a major release when it came out. Princey's Honor was huge. And then The Man Who Would Be King, I saw that on cable, I don't know how many times, and I just absolutely love that movie. I'm surprised that I haven't ever done that on the show before, because I love it. And yet you look at those three movies, and if somebody said, okay, make an auteur argument, you couldn't do it. Well, and it's so wild that Annie, Wise Blood, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and Maltese Falcon were all made by the same guy. Like, that's a resume. That's a guy who says, like, I can work. Give me a script, give me a budget, and I'll give you, I'll deliver a film. And I'll make the fuck out of that movie. I, I will I will take that script and I will make the best movie that I could possibly make from that script. And frankly, his best movie he could possibly make from that script was almost always pretty goddamn good. And it's just odd that he was able to, to, to fall back on his acting so much. There are probably so many people that don't even know that he was a director and they're just like, oh, yeah, the guy from this and that, you know, the voice of what Smog in uh, The Hobbit and these things are. Richard Boone was the voice of Smog. John Houston was the voice of Gandalf. 
one of my favorites, Myra Breckenridge. I mean, there were just so many things that he did. And especially as his, his career got, got on, he would just appear in more and more, more things, things that he didn't even direct. And I'm sure that if you asked him, he would never say, Oh, well, I'm an actor. He, he would just say, I, yeah, they asked me to do this part. Yeah, sure. I did this part. That's the kind of guy I'm very grateful for as a film lover. Not the people who are just who just say yes to any job, but people who don't. Th- I love auteurs, love them. But you want the guy who who cares about making it well. You look at his acting career and some of his director credits. He took that as a job. But like Maitland said, he if if he took it as a job, he was coming with his A game and he was going to make the heck out of it. Would that we had a few more of those? <laughs> Or would that studios, just the way financing worked, that somebody like that could work and produce good movies of varying genres for varying types of audiences? All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We are hitting that time of year where there aren't too many good trailers for the films we're about to talk about. Yes, it's September, ladies and gentlemen. We will be kicking things off with a look at the film When the Cat Comes, which is also known as the Cassandra Cat. Until then, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Maitland and Philip. So, Maitland, what is happening with you, ma'am? Well, I am right now working on a Substack newsletter called Vintage Gay Adult Novels that is the product of my longtime love for vintage gay adult novels, which are overall genre novels, thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, adventures that were written by gay writers for a gay audience who wanted to read genre fiction that had people like them in it. So yeah, they, they got gay vampires, they got gay explorers, they got gay detectives. That's uh, the thing on, on which I'm focusing now. Very cool. And I hear you were just up in Montreal. I was. I was at Fantasia. I was on. Uh, I was on a jury, which was tremendous fun. I cannot say how much I enjoyed it. 
That's great. And Philip, what's keeping you busy? I'm one of the three co-hosts of a podcast called The Substance. Um, Last year, Mike was generous enough to come on for our horror episode uh, to cover The Thing, which I'm sure he's talked about it before. He's got a wonderful uh, DVD commentary or a Blu-ray commentary on the Arrow release. So we're a variety show. We do long form and short form. We talk about things related to faith, culture, and the arts. Um, Sometimes we just do solo shows. Sometimes we have great guests on. Like um, last year, we had the chief film critic at Vox.com. We've had film critics from various uh, publications. We also have activists, authors, things like that. Um, So if you're interested in something like that, check us out at The Substance Pod on all the things or The Substance on any podcast platform. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I'm working on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, or Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.